kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What are your plans? Drift around down here? Try to stay out of jail? Well, me and the boys here, <laughs> we got some work to do. You want to come along? It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. Episode 502, this is a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard, and today we're going to be tackling one of my all-time favorite movies. If you've ever been to my Twitter profile, you've seen the pick. If you've ever listened to any of our Western episodes ever, you've heard us mention this movie, but we're going to be talking about Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, a movie that there's so much about it to discuss that it's going to be challenging initially at first to figure out how to even dig into it because we can get lost in the history or the themes or the characters or the story or just the behind the scenes. There's so much about it to tackle. So I'm going to make David Lambert, our Western historian and expert, do all the hard work <laughs> by setting things up. But if you've listened to any of our Western Roundup episodes in the past, you know him, you love him, artist David Lambert, but welcome back to Wrong Real. Ah uh, yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 honored to actually tackle this uh, this film with you. Uh, you know, it's in it's it's in your banner on the website. It's on your Twitter profile. It's it's uh, the audio that plays in every episode. Some of it's from this film. So <laughs> I know it's an important movie for you, uh, and it's an important movie for me. Um, so I hope I you know do it justice. Yeah, this is one of the situations where it's like my whole life has been leading up to this moment. So let's hope I don't get overly excited and <laughs> trip over my own feet and fall on my face. Because we've been dancing around this for the longest time. I mean, when we talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, of course you're going to talk about The Wild Bunch. Or when we talked about Ride the High Country, of course you're going to talk about The Wild Bunch. And I've, I've done, I've mentioned Peck and Bob a million times on this podcast, but this is the first time where we've gone... It's, the topic's so big and so important to me, I almost avoid it. Like the same thing holds true with a lot of Orson Welles movies where they're so important to me that I can't talk about them. And that sounds ridiculous. Like when The Other Side of the Wind came out, 
I couldn't even review it because it was just, I didn't even know how to get started because I would need like 800 pages to, to, to really go nuts about all the things that I wanted to discuss related to it. But I'm going to do my best today just to sit back and enjoy the David Lambert show because I always enjoy hearing your rants. But before we dive into the Wild Bunch, Let's pause briefly just to talk about anything going on in your own artistic endeavors. I know you also mentioned beforehand that you might be thinking about starting your own podcast. So what's going on in your life right now? Oh, just, um, you know, uh, still doing art. Uh, actually just sold a piece today, which, which, uh, thanks to your podcast, it was one of your listeners. Oh, very cool. Well, that is awesome though. That means the podcast is doing its job. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I, I should have taken his name down so I could shout him out. Sorry, whoever you are. <laughs> well, anytime somebody comes on and sells a book or promotes their podcast or promotes a movie, and like when Jeremy Workman was making his or made his movie The World Before Your Feet and he was going to screenings, people were like, Hey, I heard about your screenings on Wrong Reel, and here I am. I was like, Wow, that is fucking cool that we're able to make uh, connect the people with the content that they want to consume, which is what Wrong Reel is all about. So the fact that you sold some art through this podcast, hell yeah, mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And uh, I've been more active on Twitter uh, because of this podcast. And so, you know, that's that's been good, too. Uh, you know, every time you you retweet any of my work that 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 helps out, I get I get new followers. So uh you know it's uh it's good it's a it's a beneficial thing for me uh beyond just having the ability to just kind of rant to the things that no one in my actual social circle wants to hear about <laughs> well that's the beautiful thing about the world of podcasting is that it's like going to a cocktail party where the only guests that are invited are people who are as just as obsessed with your interests as you are like most parties you go to you just kind of spend the whole evening backpedaling out of conversations or avoiding people or talking shit about people but <laughs> but and then when you find that one person who knows a little bit what you're talking about you're like, yes i finally found like my my, my people and the wrong reel is just a giant cocktail party of movie freaks. So yeah, you're in the right place to discuss the Wild Bunch. Great, great. Uh, also, just before we even start that, um, uh, uh, I, I was doing some artwork and I listened to some of the old episodes. I have a couple of corrections that I, uh, a couple of mistakes that I made uh, on other podcasts uh, that I did with you. Um, it's only a few, but I just want to throw those out there. Lay mommy. Because. I am a pedantic uh, person, especially about, you know, Westerns and Old West history and stuff. So uh, I'm, it, it's going to bother me if I don't uh, correct some of the things. So uh, in the Jesse James episode I did with you, I think I said that the Daltons were cousins of the James brothers. I meant to say the Daltons were the cousins of the younger brothers. So the James Younger gang. So that's one correction in our Judge Roy Bean episode. Uh, I was. I, I said I think that uh, uh, the, a collaboration between Audie Murphy and Bud Bedecker was their was one of their first films. It was actually not the first film, but it was Bedecker's first western. It was The Cimarron Kid. Gotcha. So I want to make sure that's corrected. Um, and then I think in the one about the western icons, the last films of the, or the last westerns with western icons, um, there was the uh, passage in. Uh, uh, ride the high country about um, entering the house justified and it's a biblical passage and I was trying to remember I think I said it was in the book of Joshua or something like that it's actually from one of Jesus's parables the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the gospel of Luke and that's kind of an important thematic thing uh, in the film so I don't I want to make sure that 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 I correct that too. 
So gotcha. Well, I'm anyway. incapable of error, and I've never said anything incorrect on this podcast. So I can just sit back and just you know thumb my nose at you for having to issue a retraction because I you know <laughs> I mean when I just I mean in every single episode I'm like I, I'm con- I have the beautiful thing where I've got the editorial scissors and I say so many stupid things that just hit the editing <laughs> editing room floor. I'm like snip 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 snip. But even so, a lot of dumb stuff on my part sneaks its way into the episode. So I I, I don't even want to begin to open that Pandora's box of correcting all the dumb things that I have said. Well, I'm certain I'm certain I'm going to say a lot of things that are incorrect in this one too. So, you know, maybe I'll have to issue a retraction in the next the next episode. So, well, our, but I wanted to correct you. Yeah, so. Our facts might occasionally be askew, but the passion is absolutely right on the money and yeah, when it comes to passion like I first discovered this movie right as I was really getting into film history my dad did an expert job as soon as he saw that i was going movie crazy in college and like almost to an absurd degree he was like all right well these are some movies from the 60s and 70s that i was really into when i was your age and so he exposed me to things like the man who would be king and he exposed me to things like the wild bunch and i'll never forget he got me a widescreen vhs cassette and we sat down we watched it in his living room i remember it wasn't even a particularly good screening it was like sun coming through the windows like glare on the screen I was into it, but I wasn't obsessed. But then I kept coming back to it. And every time I watched it, I would like it a little bit more. And now I'm in a situation where I've seen it several times on the big screen. I've seen it in 70 millimeter, the Egyptian in LA. And I've just been thinking about and talking about Peckinpah's career for over 20 years. And for me, he still remains one of the most fascinating figures and filmmakers in the history of film. He's on my Mount Rushmore of favorite directors. And while you and I have kind of said in the past, well, Packer and Billy the Kid might be our favorite Peckinpah movie, there's a strong case you made for The Wild Bunch as the best Western ever made. And if you're a diehard Western connoisseur or Peckinpah connoisseur, you'll understand the distinction. But maybe just as a way of easing into the conversation before I get completely lost in all the chaos of this movie, how did The Wild Bunch come to be? Who are the principal people involved? Oh, well, the the initial idea for for the film was from actually a stuntman um, named Roy Sickner. Um, he was on uh, a Yul Brynner film called uh, Kings of the Sun in 1963. And he had this idea about these bandits in the 1870s who they rob a train north of the Rio Grande and go to Mexico and then it eventually it was going to uh, you know uh, culminate in a, a huge shootout between the posse that's chasing them, um, uh, the Mexican authorities, and the bunch itself. And he basically had that kind of outline, and then he had the title, "The Wild Bunch," and that was basically it. So um, he he sort of he had action scenes worked out. But beyond that, not much. So he went around um, sort of pitching the concept to people. He actually worked on the film Major Dundee and pitched it to Peckinpah at that point. But um, uh, I, I believe he was Richard Harris's double in that, uh, his stunt double. And Peckinpah at that point was, Major Dundee was a huge disaster. He had no, he, he, he wasn't thinking about any kind of future films or anything. So he just kind of let it go. And, you know, he didn't even, he didn't latch onto it at that point. So um, from there, Roy Sickner, he, um, he became uh, one of the uh, Marlboro men. So, <laughs> so his, 
So his stature sort of raised. He he kind of made it like he was the Marlboro Man, but there were multiple ones. But anyway, that raised his stature, and he got into better circles. And so he he ended up pitching the film to uh, Lee Marvin, who was interested. Um, so uh, you know he was he was spitballing with ideas with Lee Marvin, um, and then he came upon Waylon Green. Now Waylon Green, um, he was. Um, he they, he was working on a film. Um, it was a Marlon Brando movie, uh, Maury Turi. I've never seen it. Maury Turi. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> I, I have not. No. But uh, anyway, Sickner was a stunt guy on that, and uh, Waylon Green was uh, rewriting dialogue for them. He he was a documentarian. Um, he was into like uh, anthropology and science and all these things. Um, but he had developed a love for Mexico and the Mexican Revolution. Because um, as a youth, he took this uh, this museum trip, and he got stranded in Mexico, and um, and uh, you know their car, their their truck broke down or something out in the middle of the desert, and and uh, these uh, just these these Mexican families came out and helped them, and he was just so touched about um, how you know self-sacrificing they were for for him and he ended up falling in love with mexico and going to college in mexico uh in uh, mexico city so when he was there he um he met the son of one of the men who had set up the ambush of um the great revolutionary emiliano zapata so, <laughs> so from from there he started meeting um uh, uh, all these uh, old generals, all these old revolutionaries from uh, the, from the Mexican Revolution, and hearing all these stories, and uh, so he he really kind of knew that the history of, of the Mexican Revolution and that area and everything. So um, he was also friends with a bunch of different stuntmen. And there, there, there was this sort of this fraternity of stuntmen, and they would do crazy things and and, and all this type of stuff. Anyway, one of the stuntmen, everyone knew he was wild. No one really liked him. Uh, he went, he 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 had he had he had robbed a store and killed someone. And another one of the stuntmen had um, had uh, perjured himself to defend this guy, even though he didn't even like him. And Waylon Green was talking to this guy, and he said, like, why would you do something like that? Why would you put your neck on the line for a guy that you didn't even like? And the guy said to him, when you side with a man, you stick with him, even bad fucking troublemakers. That's, and that's the quote. sounding very <laughs> familiar from something that will come up later in the episode. What in the hell's the matter with you, old man? Leave him alone! He's gonna get us all killed. I'm gonna get rid of him. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're gonna stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We're finished. All of us. So Waylon Green starts kind of developing. He wants he, he, Sickner gives this idea to him about this bunch of criminals he starts developing that these these ideas of people he'd met uh these stuntmen who would stick with people that they knew were bad who who had an honor that went beyond um concepts of of the law or concepts of good and bad or 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 simple morality 
So anyway, he told Sickner, in Mexico in the 1870s, nothing was going on. So why don't you set it in the Mexican Revolution? Because that's what he knew. So he develops this this screenplay, and um, and uh, so and 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 they and and he develops with Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin came up with the idea of um, the bunch going into the town dressed as soldiers. Um, so uh, you know, so so it, it you know it, it it starts to snowball into something. Um, now. Um, at, at one point, they they were seeing they, they were seeing uh, Sickner and Green and Lee Marvin. They went to see Lilies in the Field, and at the end of the movie, um, w- walking out, Lee Marvin says, "You know, well, there's another movie where no one takes a shit." <laughs> <laughs> so, so the idea of doing something true and real uh, and nasty. Uh, was uh, something that Lee Marvin wanted to do, something Waylon Green wanted to do, and that's kind of where the film starts to develop. Um, now, um, Peckinpah gets involved with it, uh, not as a director initially, as someone to rewrite it. Uh, uh, Waylon Green was off on some kind of scientific excursion. I don't, I don't, he was, he, he, Waylon Green's a fascinating guy on his own. Uh, beyond just being a screenwriter, um, but he was off doing his own thing. And uh, Peckinpah had already researched. He already loved Mexico. He had already researched the Mexican Revolution uh, because he wrote a film called uh, Via Rides for Yul Brenner. He got fired off of that, and uh, but he had all this, all these material, all this material from the studio that he was writing it for about the Mexican Revolution, and so he was also a bit of an expert on it too. So, uh, so after Major Dundee had failed, and after he got fired off the Cincinnati Kid for trying to make it too gritty, um, uh, he he basically went back to television. And uh, and noon wine, um, baby. The only time I've seen noon wine was I went to the Museum of Television and Radio in L.A. because it was before like the proliferation of YouTube. So I had to watch it on this tiny little monitor, you know, in Beverly Hills, but it was worth it because, you know, you get to see Jason Robards and it's, it's an outstanding made for TV movie. Yeah. And that was kind of his comeback. And so, um, uh, Phil Feldman, the producer, he, he was kind of a hot young guy. He, he, the only other thing I think that he produced up to that point was, um, the rain people for Francis Ford Coppola. So, He'd heard the stories about Peckinpah that he's yeah out of he was out of control he was drunk Major Dundee was a, the big failure he got fired off Cincinnati Kid all that but he had seen Noon Wine he had seen Ride the High Country and he knew Peckinpah was a great talent and so he said he so he got in, uh, in league with him and he and he supported Peckinpah and uh, they were actually initially going to do um, a film about a jewelry heist or something um, but the um, but you know, Peckinpah had told him about this this script that he'd been rewriting, I guess, uh, the Wild Bunch, and and uh, Phil Feldman got really excited. At that time, um, the Leone films uh, were coming to America and doing big business, and they're films that are you know they're set on the border. Um, they got banditos, sombreros, machine guns, you know, uh, b- you know bandoliers. All, all these elements, uh, they're they're more violent. They're they're more amoral. The uh, this idea of the wild bunch fit into that, and they thought that it could be 
an actual like a big hit in that in that sort of uh, um, landscape, uh, you know, box office landscape, I guess. So they were willing to get behind it because um, I don't sometimes people I think might overstate the influence of Leone on Peckinpah. Um, it's it's more so that Leone allowed Peckinpah to do the things that he was already pointing towards. Yeah, because uh, the Western as a genre in cinema was really struggling. TV had become the new home for Westerns, and after The Magnificent Seven and like Ride the High Country, it's hard to find a lot of good American Westerns during the 60s, and it's really the pro- popularity of the Italian Westerns that helped kind of bring it back and give the Western like that massive late 60s, early 70s resurgence? Yeah, yeah, it just, yeah, certain things started becoming old hat, and um, just it it just, there were just elements of it that that became tired. But the thing is, like, with, like, uh, even back to the, you know, the beginning of The Rifleman, Peckinpah was already wanting to subvert expectations. Um, He wanted to be grittier, darker, um, more realistic, at least, uh, emotionally. Uh, and then he, when he had his own TV show, the Westerner, um, that's what he did. And he does it with ride the high country by the, by the end of ride the high country. When you get into the mining town with the Hammond brothers and all that, that kind of grit, that kind of nastiness, uh, is there already. So it, it's not like the spaghetti Westerns made Peckinpah go, Oh yeah, this is the thing to do. It's just that it was more so him and Leone had similar ideas and Leone had opened up that world for him. Um, yeah, he'd, and created, also, he'd created a marketplace where these kind of movies could thrive. Yeah, exactly. So I don't want to downplay Leone's influence or importance, but uh, he's a very different artist from Peckinpah. Also, it's not like Peckinpah was like an 18-year-old kid when the Leone movies were coming out. <laughs> he was a pretty old, surly guy already and had already made a name for himself, like you said, with The Rifleman, with The Westerner, with Ride the High Country. And you can see all the DNA for what he would later on achieve in those shows and movies. So I, I mean, as much as I would like the idea of Peckinpah being inspired by Leone, they're very different filmmakers. Like, Leone's operatic and gorgeous and so stirring and Pe- uh, Peckinpah's many things but rarely is he operatic and I just feel like they're they're very there oftentimes Sergio Leone will also be on my Mount Rushmore so I've had a lot, a lot of love and affection for both filmmakers but they're going after very different vibes oh yeah no I mean I totally I, I, I love Sergio Leone I don't want to discount him in any way but I, but I think that it's a, you know, the idea of even just like the the idea of like Mexican Revolution or or border uh, westerns, it, it was already a thing. There were already films like Treasure of Pancho Villa with Rory Calhoun, and it's got a machine gun in it, and so it's it it was already sort of a known subgenre of of the western. Um, but uh, and Sergio Corbucci had started dabbling it with like the mercenary and things like that. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you, yeah, stuff like Bullet for the General and stuff. So, so th- those things are there. Uh, the professionals came out, er, you know. So, all, yeah, I mean, the professionals was kind of a warm up for the genre. I mean, that's one of the best westerns of the '60s, hands down. I think sometimes it gets overlooked and overshadowed, but I saw it in the theater for the first time I saw it, and I've seen it on DVD many times since. And the professionals fucking rocks. 
Well, well, that that was also sort of the landscape. You you have the uh, you have the magnificent seven. You've got the professionals, and then you kind of get the wild bunch. Now, Peckinpah hated the magnificent seven, and I can see why because its portrayal of Mexico is just so off. The Mexicans are just. They're childlike. No, it's like a commer- it's like a commercial or propaganda from like the tourist bureau because Mexico was pissed about what was it, um, uh, Veracruz, and so they really stepped in with Magnificent Seven and said you have to portray us in a particular light or we are not letting you shoot here. And so you, it's definitely presenting an idealized version of Mexico. It's that's true, and Pecaba does that too, but. But his it's ideal a, is like the, lying around the bottle of vodka with his head between a girl's tits and just like well, wasting the day away. <laughs> that's true, but we'll, we'll we'll dive into that. We'll dive into Peckinpah's Mexican ideal, but um, uh, because he's guilty of of romanticizing it a little bit too. But but the thing is, like when you watch the Magnificent Seven, you have these gunfighters, and you don't the, transplanting like the Seven Samurai into into the West doesn't work because. These guys are hired guns, and you have no idea why they're helping these people, uh, unless they're just these inherently good dudes. But but their vocation makes it a thing where they they wouldn't be inherently good. They're guys that 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 kill people for money, essentially, right? So why it's it's not it, it's not a thing where you can do a one to one taking taking a samurai story. And then moving it to the West. Yeah, and, hired and killers ma- are a very different breed from the noble samurai. And that's what's yeah. so beautiful about the Wild Bunch is that while – I mean they, they, the movie makes no apologies about the fact that they are people who are thieves who will use human shields and kill anyone in their way, men, women, and children. However, they have this strange code where giving up your life for the sake of a friend – also is it within the realm of possibility and their code is so complex and I feel like Ernest Borgnine probably defines the code better than any of them. Pike probably a little less so. I mean the Gorches I think they just need a leader but the code is kind of exemplified by by Dutch in so many ways and it gives the movie the soul in a lot of ways but then again all those scenes in Mexico like in the Mexican village which are not in the script they also give the movie this sense of soul. It just blows my mind how many remarkable scenes are in the movie that are not in the script? I mean, the dialogue in this movie, some of my favorite dialogue in any movie ever, maybe my favorite dialogue of any, ever written for a movie, but my favorite sequences are actually things that just Peckinpah cooked up from his fucking imagination. Well, th- I would love to get uh, I would love to get a hold of Waylon Green's script before Peckinpah rewrote it because I because I have read the Peckinpah rewrite of Waylon Green's script, and even that is still different from the finished film in a lot of ways, but, um, but yeah, initially the character of angel doesn't want the bunch to go and meet his, uh, meet his village. Um, because he, he just felt that, you know, his, all the villagers will look down on him for being with this, these horrible people. Well, I love that line. He's like any insult to my family while we're here and I will kill you. And they're like, Hey angel, do you have a sister? See, I'd be pleased to make her acquaintance and that are your mama too. And it's like, yeah, so good. Uh, But, uh, so Peckinpah, uh, just to delve into a little bit of his history, um, he was, uh, he was a Marine in World War II. He was stationed in China. And when he was there, he witnessed all kinds of violence. He witnessed, uh, executions, beheadings. He witnessed people being dragged around, uh, by their scrotums. Uh, they're just horrible things. 
uh, he was on a train at one point and um, there, there were these, there were these uh, people shooting up at the train and they, they end up shooting a guy and he witnesses this, this killing. And, and, and maybe he says this after a fact, after the fact, because of all this slow motion montage violence. But he said, you know, as this person was being shot, he jumped down and watched it and everything just slowed down. That moment became just, it was, it was probably a split second, but it just, it, just the time had been stretched for him. And it was that sort of emotion that, he wanted to portray and also he was probably a person who had ptsd like he you know he had witnessed real atrocity um he had he had uh, you know uh he had he heard of uh you know one of one of his marine uh one of the his fellow marines had raped a girl and he was gonna go kill him and and he went there to go do it and the guy had been um he was blinded from bad, bad whiskey that the Chinese had sold him, and he ended up not doing it. So anyway, Peckinpah himself came to that point of 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 um, you know wanting to kill someone and then backing off once he'd realized that the guy had kind of you know he was already in a bad state. Um, so that was that that it's that it's that kind of honesty that he had wanted to portray on film also he'd grown up in fresno and his grandfather had this property with all these old cowboys and and uh he'd hear the stories from these guys and these guys were very similar to the stuntmen that Waylon green had known had their own code of honor and ethics and and it wasn't necessarily a thing that was related to the law or what 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 you might say simplistically as good good or bad, which appealed to Peckinpah. His father was a lawyer. His grandfather was a lawyer and a congressman. Um, and so um, the, the idea of the importance of the law and, and uh, you know, all the, all the uh, you know, what, is there something that transcends that uh, had appealed to him also just biblically? Because um, as L.Q. Jones says, is that Peckinpah was a very religious filmmaker he 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 it was obviously a thing that 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 stuck with him and sort of tortured him yeah tormented uh, him in a lot of ways you can see it in his movies yeah and and by the time from from ride the ride the high country you see that that a guy is justified but through himself but also through the law and by the time you get to the wild bunch he has said no the law doesn't mean anything civilization doesn't mean anything there's something there's something that is inherent in man it, that that it, whether it's good or evil or whatever you want to classify it you can't put it as the law and it's why you get scenes like with Deke Thornton's talking about like how does it feel getting paid for with like the laws are arms wrapped around you how does it feel to be so goddamn right i mean the law in this movie is in allegiance and almost at like being it's almost like in service to the railroad as opposed to the railroad being in service to the law and so you see his ambivalent feelings about the law like within the first 10 minutes of the beginning of the movie oh yeah yeah i mean well i guess we'll dive into all that all that stuff but you know there there i i, I don't like to 
turn the wild bunch into like a Vietnam metaphor. I think that's the most simplistic way to read it. It's obviously of its time. It's obviously being made in that sort of uh, uh, chaos but, that's but happening. It's not an allegory. I think yeah, people want to read it as an allegory, and that's fine. They're happy to read it however they please. But for me, that's one of the least interesting ways to crack this movie open. I think it's a. I think it's a. Uh, uh, um, I think it's a way to sort of legitimize uh, the film and the violence in the film, and where I, where, which I don't think it needs that kind of justification. Um, but the only interesting aspect about Vietnam uh, that that I feel is in relation to this film is is also in relation to the professionals and the Magnificent Seven, because with the Magnificent Seven, you're kind of seeing where America is entering the Vietnam War. The idea of coming in, helping these oppressed villagers, uh, you know, from, the, you know, uh, it, it's American interventionalism at its best. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to come in and save the day. By the time you get to the professionals, it's a little more cynical. And you're there and uh, what you what you went in there for initially isn't what you thought. But at the end, you could potentially still pull some good out of it. And by the time you get to the wild bunch, it's like, fuck it, kill everything. <laughs> so, I guess so like when it, like, and also people on the news were seeing all sorts of horrible atrocities about Vietnam on a regular basis. So I respect how Peckinpah thought it was almost dishonest to portray violence on film in a way where people knew the reality, whether it was firsthand or through TV. And so I, I like, but it's a weird thing where sometimes you hear Peckinpah saying comments about how he was using all the slow motion violence of the movie as a way of forcing people to confront the violence. And then he was kind of caught off guard that people were reveling in it. And I never quite buy that because when you shoot violence as beautifully and as like almost like a ballet, a ballet of death, like you see in the wild bunch on some level, he has to know that it's going to be thrilling and exciting. And so Peck and Pop, while I find him, I can listen to him talk for hours. I find him absolutely riveting. And sadly, there's not a lot of interviews out there. I never completely buy the idea that he was trying to make the violence slow and beautiful in order to make people confront the horror. Because I don't feel any horror while watching I, I, this I, movie. I, I, totally, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that Peck and Pop... A Peck and Paul interview is fascinating, but a Peck and Paul interview is like a Dylan interview. It's just like, you're not, I, I don't think you're actually going to glean much truth from it. I, I think that, you know, in many ways he was full of shit it, it, when he says that he failed with the Wild Bunch and how he portrayed violence or whatever. And then, but he still goes on to like the getaway or he still does violence or, or cross of iron. It's, he still does it beautifully erotically or, or bring the, the yeah. head of Alfredo Garcia. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. So, so, um, I don't fully buy that by the time you do get to like Alfredo Garcia and like Pat Garrett, the violence in those movies is a little more clumsy or a little less like, uh, it, it, it it's not quite the spectacle, but he, he still goes back to the spectacle with cross of iron. So, so I don't, I don't really buy him when he says that he failed or that he didn't bring about the catharsis that he wanted. I, I think that he's, I think he's saying it because it sounds cool to say. Yeah, almost <laughs> like he's like trying to score points with some critics at the time who were reacting in horror to the film. But yeah, because like his editor Lombardo 
had shown him these sequences from the show Felony Squad, the episode My Mommy Got Lost, with certain slow motion sequences where Joe Don Baker gets shot. And he was showing him how you can shoot some things at 24 frames per second, but then triple print them optically at 72 frames per second. And how you can basically they're shooting with six cameras at certain points, some at 24, some at 30, some at 60, some at 90 and some at 120. And when you cut them together, the action could shift between speeds, giving it that decompressed elastic quality that's so utterly I mean, I get euphoria just from the technique while watching those sequences. I don't, I, I don't feel revulsion at all. I feel, I'm just like enthralled by the beauty. Yeah, and 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 you know, Peckinpah was a big uh, you know fan of Kurosawa, so it comes from that and Eisenstein, you know, the montage and and and, and all that, and um, and so even even back in Major Dundee, he was attempting to incorporate slow motion in the violent scenes, but all that got cut out by the studio. Uh, who knows if it, it, if it looked any good, but, um, but that's another kind of thing where you have to factor in the influence of uh, Bonnie and Clyde because Bonnie and Clyde does do one of the great pieces of uh, like film editing, slow motion violence that you'll ever see. And I think that, Peckinpah failing on Major Dundee after seeing Bonnie and Clyde, he sort of said, yeah, that's the way to do it. And Lou Lombardo, who had actually come up with Robert Altman and uh, goes to work on McCabe and Mrs. Miller after this one, um, he had, yeah, like you said, shown him this felony squad sequence. So you have all these sort of minds that are, something's in the air, I guess, that that, that are, are all are all converging on the same on the same ideas. Because clearly, Peckinpah was already trying to do slow motion violence before Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but I think Bonnie and Clyde really just showed the way to actually took it to the next step. Yeah, to have that rapid fire editing, like when um, when Bonnie and Clyde look at each other and you see Faye Dunaway kind of turn her head to the side very tenderly right before the gunfire begins. And it's that contrast between the the quick editing and then the slow motion violence. I can't think of an earlier example that's even comes close to being as effective as that. So obviously that at that point, the dam, the dam had broken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I guess we can jump into all that uh, in a, you know, in a bit, but so, so Peckinpah anyway, had, had, the, had an affinity for the West his whole life, uh, because of these old timers and a lot of his dialogue comes from these old timers. He, he had seen this, this, this old 1870s, this guy's born in the 1870s cowboy. Um, he got kicked by a mule on his grandfather's ranch, you know, Peckinpah was a kid and he witnessed it. And after being kicked, the guy exclaimed, well, kiss my sister's black cat's ass. So, <laughs> nice, good old Crazy Lee at the beginning of yeah. The Wild Bunch. <laughs> yes, we shall gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful. Hey! Hey, stop! Stop! Fellas flew like a turkey. Well, they shouldn't have run. They shouldn't have run. Sing! Well, how'd you like to kiss my sister's black cat's ass? Which, when you watch it, you're like, what the fuck does that even mean? But it's delightful when you, when you hear it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of the dialogue is, is, is like that. And, and so Peckinpah really brought that. I don't, 
like I don't I I don't know if Peckinpah was like a, a, like a historian of the West or anything like that. I think that he really was more so bringing in his own experience, like an emotional the, truth that he was looking for. That it, almost how he kind of like imagined it. But what I like is how he's got so many incredible ideas, but he's also incredibly open to ideas. And if he hears a cool thing like the visual metaphor of the ants and the scorpions in the fire, he's like, oh my God, I'm going to rethink the whole movie and we're going to incorporate that. Bring me some goddamn ants and a scorpion. And so it's hard, like when you're a really good filmmaker, to remain open to input, but at the same time remaining true to your vision and pursuing your vision, that's a very complicated tap dance to achieve and I think it's one of his greatest strengths as a filmmaker where he could keep everything that works as being offered to him but at the same time carve his own path yeah exactly so a- after he'd come back from the marines he he he, he probably has PTSD he'd fallen you know he, he'd become an alcoholic he'd fallen in 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 love with like drinking whoring around and and all this stuff and so uh, Mexico was just a thing that like his getaway, it, it was his getaway from civilization. It was where he could kind of just be this primitive man. You know, he becomes enamored of Mexican culture, the machismo, uh, all, all of that. He would, he would request the song, um, you know, uh, the, the, what La Golondrina. I, I, I can't do Spanish. <laughs> Are you talking about the song that they hear you know, at the, when they leave the village yeah, at the yeah. very end of the film? Yeah, it's yeah, one of the most yeah, hauntingly go, go beautiful pieces of music ever put in any movie. It just sends chills right up my spine. Every bar he went to, every restaurant he went to, if they had a mariachi band, he'd he would request it. Uh, it means uh, it's a funeral song. It means the swallows, the the, the Indios in Mexico uh, believe that the that, that swallows would take souls to heaven. So, yeah, right, so I just found uh, you yeah, La Golondrina, Spanish for the swallow, and yeah, it was written in 1862 by Mexican physician Narcisco Serradel. So yeah, but it's, oh. god damn, it's so fucking good. And for a long time when I would watch the movie, if there was anyone else in the room, when you'd hear the song again at the end, I'd tell people a couple minutes ahead of them, like, look, if anybody even exhales when this song comes on, I'm going to hit you in the face because I need to get the full experience because <laughs> I would just start, almost start weeping every time I heard it. So, well, through one of his excursions to Mexico, he had, he had many Mexican wives and, uh, you know, he has a, he has a Mexican daughter. Uh, he, you know, but any, anyway, he, while he was in Mexico, um, there was a truck driver named uh, uh, Chalo Gonzalez, um, and uh, one day, you know, Chalo Gonzalez goes into a bar in Tijuana, and uh, there's a gringo there that everyone wants to kill, and the gringo's he's waving a chair around, and 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 uh, Chalo's like, what the fuck is happening? So the gringo says, do you speak English? You know, and he says, yeah, yeah, I speak English. And what what had happened was the the gringo was Sam Peckinpah, and he knew Spanish but not great. And someone had played a trick on him. Uh, so he'd gone into this bar and he was proposing a toast, but the toast that he said was that all everyone in the bar, all their mothers were were whores, and and that he had had sex with all of them, <laughs> and everyone there were sons of bitches. <laughs> So, so Chalo Gonzalez basically cleared everything up to to, to all these Mexicans <laughs> that had wanted to kill him. 
and they became friends from from then on. And so Chalo Gonzalez became uh, kind of the hero of the Wild Bunch in terms of the making of it because he's the guy who found the locations, he found the train, he found the dynamite. Um, he he really was important um, in, in in finding every almost everything about the film and. He was sort of the whipping boy. It's like the studio wanted him fired and, and all the production people didn't like him and all this stuff. So anyway, he he's really the guy that made the Wild Bunch happen. And he sprung up a, a friendship with Peckinpah years before that. I, I went to a screening of the Wild Bunch uh, probably about 10 years ago in L.A. And, and um, it was insane because... I'm in, I'm in line, and, and that's when I, I think I told you the story before, but the guy, I met Peckinpah, squib guy, um, and I met Chalo Gonzalez and his son, and, 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 I, and I was talking to them, and he's in the film, too. Um, it was just weird the way they set it up, because he should have been a guest of honor, but we were all waiting in the same line together. It was gotcha. Very- <laughs> he should have definitely had a director's chair waiting for him. So uh, we'll, I'll get into uh, more of his uh, contributions but so so anyway at, at this time uh, you know when everyone's kind of talking about um the dollars films uh, another border western kind of seeing the box office landscape the movie landscape at the time there was also a really hot script going around by william goldman called butch cassidy and the sundance kid and uh there was a bidding war for it and you know um everyone was going crazy about it and uh, as you probably know, the Bush casting and the Sundance Kid were part of a gang known as the Wild Bunch. Um, so, uh, so they were. So Warner Brothers was like, okay, well, this will be our version. You know, this will be our version of Butch casting and the Sundance Kid. Um, uh, <laughs> you couldn't funny. possibly conceive of two movies that are more on po- like opposite ends of like the the spectrum. <laughs> Butch Cassidy, well, so similar but Bunch. so different. Yeah, yeah, so similar. And it, actually, in uh, Waylon Green's original script, they do mention Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, they do talk about how they went, how they go to Bolivia, and and you know that might be a thing for them to do. And uh, obviously, that that gets cut. You probably don't want to, you know. You probably want to keep them as separate as possible. I know, um, like Peckinpah's favorite Western of all time was Shane, and it's the mythic qualities, the gritty qualities of it, the gritty quality of the violence. Uh, he he thought that was the best um, Western that had ever been made. And um, George Stevens at the time when Butch Cassidy was going around, I think he he had read the script and he told Jim Silk, who was a friend of Peckinpah's. Um, he, he, he said, um, you know, um, I'd rather make the films that your friend Peckinpah is making than this. (laughs) So even George, so it's sort of a compliment paid from George Stevens to Peckinpah. And this is before even doing the wild bunch. I think that George Stevens probably had seen ride the high country, um, and, uh, you know, saw the truth in what he was doing. I mean, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is, uh, it's fine. It's fun. You know, it's yeah, I love guys it. and I've, I've got nothing but love for Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, but it's, it's, I mean, while the Wild Bunch is plenty fun, but the Wild Bunch is like, for me, it's as grand and complex and unforgettable as like a great novel by like Ernest Hemingway, whereas Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid 
it's more of a diversion or an entertainment. I don't mean that in a dismissive way because there's so many great scenes and it's so much fun and so many so many great characters. But the Wabaj is just, it's so, it's like comparing like the best bottle of scotch you can possibly find to, I don't know, like, um, I'm trying to think of a fair comparison that doesn't seem dismissive. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, what'd you say? I said a Mike's hard lemonade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, it just, it just, it's just, they're two different things. And I guess it's possible for me to love something like Butch Can Sundance Kid, but then have complete and total awe and like enduring and just like like never ending respect for something like the Wild Bunch that just vastly exceeds anything that like ordinarily able to be put into words. So I don't, I'm not necessarily doing that. I'm, I'm trying to make a talk about how much I like the Wild Bunch way more, but at the same time, I still got a love <laughs> for Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. So it's yeah, inter- it's entertaining. It's not one of my favorite Westerns, but it's entertaining. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to shit on it. It's, it's, it's not a bad movie. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, but anyway, so, so as they're developing it, Lee Marvin bows out. He'd already made the professionals and uh, and he didn't want to get typecast, I guess, in in these like sort of you know gringos go to Mexico during the revolution action films. Uh, also, well, maybe that was his first excuse, but his probably the bigger excuse is that he got paid a million dollars to appear and paint your wagon. So, so, so Lee Marvin bows out, and uh, Peckinpah said later that um, the film, the the Wild Bunch, was um, his. It was his response to the professionals. He, he, I don't think he hated Magnificent Seven. I don't know if he said any more about the professionals than that, but he said, This is my response. So I get the feeling that he also didn't have a lot of respect for the professionals either. Well, the same way you can, you can like High Noon, but still respect the fact that Howard Hawks, he made Rio Bravo in response to that. So filmmakers, a little competition and a little, I feel like it's always a healthy thing when you see something and you feel like it's off in a certain way and you make a response. And I feel like that's, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing when filmmakers are trying to top one another or up one another. Well, well, Peckinpah, who the person he really respected was John Huston. And it's very clear in the film that he is borrowing stuff from Treasure of Sierra Madre. The, you know, uh, the, the portrayal of the Mexican village, the idyllic sort of, feel the old man Sykes um some of the some some of Mapache's subordinates are very much coming from treasure of Sierra Madre so um he he did give credit when he thought a filmmaker got the feel of Mexico right so um, yeah, it's criminal that we never got a movie where like Peckinpah helped with the script and where John Cheeseman would get to shoot it. Because I feel like early Peckinpah, like when he was writing things for like when he was working on the script for One-Eyed Jacks, when Kubrick was going to direct, I feel like that early fo- version of Peckinpah would have been a great contributor to the world of John Huston. Yeah, I think if, any, if there's any other filmmaker who sort of has the same uh, aura about him, I would say John Huston and Sam Peckinpah are... Are, are sort of the two that yeah like you said they're the Hemingways of uh, film yeah they, they have like that mythic adventurer quality that no filmmakers have today <laughs> yeah and then you you know and then you know Peck and Bud does you know bring me ahead of Alfredo Garcia and then Houston does you know under the volcano and under under the volcano is a great movie but it's no bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia you know so Agreed. it's it, you know, so it's uh, it, it's interesting. Although that scene where Albert uh, Finney is found on the side of the road, face down, and he's offered a, like a bottle of booze to kind of like sharpen him up or whatever, is one of my, my favorite comedic scenes in all of John Huston's films. 
Oh, no, no, no. Under the Volcano is the best portrayal of drunkenness that I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Albert Finney is the best drunk I've ever seen on film. Thanks Um, a million, old chap. I mean, yeah, just it's astonishing. So anyway, so anyway, Lee Marvin, he bows out. And and honestly, I love Lee Marvin, but uh, but uh, I don't I don't see him having the pathos of Liam Holden in the role of Pike. I I, I, I don't see it. I, I think that that was actually a great thing that happened for the film, um, which is no disc, not to discredit Lee Marvin in, in any way, but I just think there's something there's something more. And maybe Peckinpah could have got that out of Lee Marvin, but I don't feel Lee Marvin ever, ever plays a character with the richness that William Holden plays Pike Bishop. So I'm yeah, not. I think I'm maybe not. it's the fact that William Holden started out as such a, a beautiful matinee idol when he's doing things like Born Yesterday and Sunset Boulevard, and it almost looks like he's going to be just like this great looking leading man, but he was such. I mean, granted, Lee Marvin wasn't afraid to have a drink, but William Holden was such a hardcore drinker. He kind of drank all of his good looks out of him, and there's like this strange, haunted, demonic quality to him that Peckinpah would probably responded to. But I imagine Lee Marvin, I don't know. I mean, imagine going out drinking one night with Lee Marvin, Sam Peckinpah, and William Holden. I don't know who would poison themselves more, <laughs> but the reality <laughs> is that William Holden brought something to the character of Pike that's absolutely heartbreaking and like at the very end of the movie when you hear Strother Martin saying like TC there he is there's Pike like you feel that awe and that wonder in his voice because we feel the same way about the character at this point oh yeah well at that point that's the other thing it's also it's also the guilt William Holden at this point had been in Europe what was it Italy he was drunk driving and he ended up getting in a car accident killing people and um, he got he sort of got a light sentence, but he had to carry that around with him. And so the days of you know Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, and all that is that's behind him. You yeah. know, William Holden is a killer, and and he's got he carries that guilt, and so he carries that guilt as Pike. And so it, it is one of those things where Peckinpah is using. That sort of casting, the way he used the casting of Randolph Scott and Joel McRae in Ride the High Country to to really give you this character's backstory, um, just just through just through looking at him. Yeah, and um, there's so many scenes where people die just by virtue of being getting in his way, like the girl who gets trampled under his horse in the opening battle scene, and as as they're leaving town, and I guess it's like her scarf or her sash is still tangled up in his horse, and he kind of tosses it aside. And then later on, when he's using human shields in the final battle, his character, it, it, you better not get too close to Pike because there's a very good chance you're going you're gonna to catch a bullet or get trampled or something. Yeah. And there were, the, the, so, so, so anyway, after Lee Marvin leaves, it's like there's a, there's a big casting call and, and they're looking for all these people, Gregory Peck, um, you know, they, at one point they thought of Jimmy Stewart, which, which to me, it sounds insane. It would have been a different <laughs> movie. The Wild Ones starring Jimmy Stewart. But, you know, he had done the Anthony Mann um, westerns and could show a darker, you know, uh, shade to to who he was. And, you know, he had actually run – he had done bombing runs in World War II. So, you know, Jimmy Stewart had killed people. So there's a there would be a darkness there, but um, it's not a thing that I can 
really truly imagine. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the darkness that he explores in the Anthony Mann movies is pretty intense, but it's just a. Uh, I, th- I think we can all just thank the movie gods that we ended up with William Holden because he was born to play this part. Yeah, and, and in terms of other casting, they were considering um, actually Sammy Davis Jr. for the character of Dutch. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. was obsessed with the West. People don't really know this. And um, um, he, he did actually appear in some Westerns at some point. Um, and he would be he was always practicing his fast draw he was probably the fat i think they said uh, i've read that he was the quickest fast draw in hollywood sammy davis jr but that also would have been a very different film ernest borgnine was not peckinpah's choice Peck, he was uh he was forced on uh, on to uh the film um from the studio uh because he was you know he had mikhail's navy he had um like from you here know, to eternity uh, and from here to return marty uh, you know uh, so so they just figured he was a better he was a he was a bigger box office draw so he kind of got straddled with him the, the dirty dozen you know um well he nails so, it he made uh, peckinpah cry on set when he says like i wouldn't have it any other way either and peckinpah couldn't say cut because he was weeping from the reading of the line so i think that's one of the situations where it worked out into his favor oh again at the very end when he's screaming like, give him hell pike i mean it makes uh all the hairs on my neck stand straight up oh yeah he he he's perfect he's, it's one of those things yeah it's just that like serendipity where yeah he you can't you can't imagine the part I mean, especially can't imagine Sammy Davis Jr. in the yeah. part. And I think he speaks Spanish better than anybody else in the movie. And he's like, "Quieres tú bailar conmigo, por favor?" Yeah. And like in the way he does it, like he he just he leans into it so well. Yeah. So, uh, and then uh, 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 Peck and Paul had wanted Robert Blake um, to play Angel, um, probably because he was, you know, one of his first roles was in Treasure of Sierra Madre. Um, but but then you know uh, you know luckily luckily they get Jaime Sanchez who was not Mexican he was actually Puerto Rican so he's actually the only person in the film that plays a Mexican who isn't Mexican but he's still Hispanic um, which was n- almost unheard of at the time and and so you know uh, it's it's probably for the best that Robert Blake um, did not did not play the role because <laughs> he's also great in the film. And, uh, you know, of, of the oh, 40 like Mexico li- lindo and they're like, I don't see what's so lindo about it. This looks like more Texas. It's like, oh, you have no eyes. Like, but that, he, I, I, I love the part of, of, of Angel. Yeah. I guess the Mexican crew did not like him. They thought he was putting on airs I and, gotcha. uh, well, he's a young and I know that he was always like fucking with his gun on the set and that sort of thing. And you've got, I mean, anytime you've got people in their forties and fifties and you're around some fresh faced youth, it's like old dogs and young dogs. The young dogs are going to annoy the shit out of the old dogs. There's supposedly a story who knows how true it is that he was spinning his gun around and William Holden was like, don't spin that around. It's got live, it's got blanks in there, you know, and he's spinning it and, and a blank went off. Everyone freaked out, and supposedly William Holden grabbed him, you know, wrestled him down, pulled him by the hair, and made him apologize to 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 all the cast and crew. I don't know how true the story is, but it is a story yeah, that has been. There are a lot of stories from the set that it's hard to know what's 
fact and what's fiction because this movie was made 51 years ago. But I love hearing them all the stories, <laughs> and then people can decide for themselves what's true and what's not. Yeah, exactly. Because there are there are wild stories that like Pegabob budgeted for the bridge explosion, and uh, he budgeted it extra did it cheaper and pocketed the rest of the money. That's not true. There's a lot of things that are not true that, that a horse died in the bridge explosion. That's not true. <coughs> so there are, what about I the story that he personally was diving into the river, which was flooded <coughs> to retrieve a camera that was full of valuable footage. I've heard that story. Uh, uh, William Holden or Sam Peckinpah? Sam Peckinpah. That was, I think that was mentioned in oh, the Paul yeah, Sador I, I, documentary, I, I, an album and montage, they, in the Oscar-nominated <laughs> short, which I, I'm so glad I hung on to all my old DVDs because on my old DVD of The Wild Bunch, there was still this like 35-minute short by Paul Sador, an album and montage. I mean, they, they told that story about Peckinpah diving into the river after a camera. Yeah, yeah, I, I've heard that. That's probably true. Um, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. Um, William Holden himself was a daredevil and there are actually photos of him walking on like the cables of the bridge, like a tightrope because <coughs> he would do stuff like that all the time. And actually during the train heist, Peckinpah let William Holden drive the train and nice. he, hit, he hit it full blast. So anyway, he's hitting it full blast. Warren Oates is on the front of the train while he's doing this. He hits the brakes, but the train is not stopping, and it's going towards the back of the back car of the other train. Warren Oates had to jump to the side. Gordon Dawson, it, the, the two trains collided. Gordon Dawson thought they were going to explode, so he's running. As he's running, he sees this figure running past him, and he looks, and it's Warren Oates. Warren Oates had been in the Marines, and he jumps into down a ravine, and Warren Oates says. You know, I, I, I beat it again. I beat it again. Like he beat death again. So, <laughs> so anyway, Peckinpah let William Holden essentially crash the train into another train with with uh, with Warren Oates on the front. So there were insane things that were actually going on um, uh, on the film. Um, so but but, you know, back to casting uh, the the the. the, the the duo of you know LQ Jones and Struther Martin did not start with this movie. They'd worked on a film called Target Zero, a war film in 1955, and in it, one of them was injured, and the other is carrying him on his back for the whole film. So <laughs> they'd actually done a few movies before this where they were sort of this sort of a duo, and so they had a they had their own rapport. So that definitely works for the film. And it, oh, and God, it, yeah. It, I got to see uh, LQ Jones introduce – what the hell did he introduce? I saw him speak before a screening at the Egyptian, and he was telling story after story, and he was so goddamn funny. But I love how he and Strother Martin came up with the idea that uh, the two of them Never. might be a little – you know, familiar with one another behind the scenes. Yeah. And he's like, liar, black liar. It's yeah. like, you shouldn't talk to me about that way. And he's like, he's so wounded and so upset. You stupid damn fools. Why did you shoot this employee and let the others get away? Why did that employee? I first shot kill this man right here. Liar. He's shooting that employee full of holes. Why, I was dropping this band. And them others too. Why? I must have killed all three of them. You must have killed all three of them. Point. But you think you did not find that three while you spot Liar! Black liar! You shouldn't talk like that to me. I'm sorry. Come on, TC. Help me get his boots. 
That's be- yeah, it's perfect. I I I think I've I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. I met LQ Jones. I said I'm a big fan of your work, and uh, he said, "Well, you don't have very good taste, uh, but that's okay." <laughs> well, I, I love him as an actor. And I love him in his movies, and I love that how the two of them got reunited in Battle to Cable Hogue. They're incredible in that as well, and yeah, just their their chemistry. And he's like he's like, "Sorry, TC, help me get his boots." Like it's just they're they're so yeah. good together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they're 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 great. Um, so um, uh, so the movie gets greenlit. They get it casted. And Peckinpah kind of learned his lesson from Major Dundee. He had spread the locations out all throughout Mexico. And so for this one, he basically kept all the locations sort of uh, very close to each other. Um, The town at the beginning of Starbuck, the border town, is uh, a a real, you know, a real Mexican town that they, they kind of built out. And it and and it does have a it has a reality to it a, a true feeling to it that um, a lot of westerns don't have when they're when it's just kind of that false front uh, studio also, it's set a weird situation where it's oh. 1913 like it's not the wild west anymore it's a western but it's like when I think of wild west I think of like post civil war but pre 20th century but they're talking about like airplanes and how they're going to use them in the war we're almost in a weird situation where it's like what the fuck genre is this obviously it's a western but it's a weird time period and place and but i love the the temperance union in the town is so damn cool and i love when they're doing that vow about not to drink like i vow to abstain from all distilled fermented and malt liquors including wine beer and cider and People they can't remember. It's too complicated, and they're all like, uh, "Beer, cider, wine, beer." Like <laughs> you hear people kind of fucking up the vow, but they do such a yeah. good job of just setting up that town, and more importantly, setting up the geography of the town so that once the action starts to unfold, you know where everybody is, and you can just sit back and enjoy this spectacular battle sequence. In in that in in that opening, uh, people probably want to watch. And look uh, and and look in those Temperance Union extras. There are clearly some Mexican extras that are just like got some blonde wigs on or something. Yeah. <laughs> something, because uh, it's you know mostly Mexican extras. Actually, one of the extras in that scene uh, is um, is a uh, uh, Raul Madero. He was the younger brother of Francisco Madero, who was basically the father of the Mexican Revolution. And Raul Madero himself was a hero of the revolution. So it's uh, he Peckinpah knew that and put him in the film. So you're basically seeing the brother of the guy that started the entire Mexican Revolution in this movie, um, but not as a Mexican, uh, as as one as one of the temperance uh, union people. So. Um, you know, Google what he looks like and find him in the movie. Nice. Uh, it's kind of a fun but I, little. Uh, but I love the little Temperance Union scene because this movie does something really cool. Frequently, I mean, the score, Jerry Fielding's score, is one of the most exquisitely beautiful scores ever composed by a human being. But he does this thing where people will say certain lines, and the score will briefly change. Where you hear the guy say, "Now, ladies and gentlemen, folks, that's from the Good Book," and it, and when as soon as he says that the music changes and like this little organ music kicks in. And I love how like the score is so malleable and flexible that periodically it can kind of comment on things that people are saying. And I just, I find that so goddamn cool. And it happens again and again and again throughout the movie. We're just puts these little exclamation marks on little lines by characters. Yeah. And he, he, him and Peckham about clash because 
he first met him, I think, on Noon Wine. He had scored Noon Wine. And um, Peckham heard the score, and he was like, I asked for Mexico. You gave me Vienna. Like, what is this? And uh, uh, Fielding was, you know, not not a guy to back down. He, he was like, "Fuck you!" You, you know, he he didn't he wasn't going to take any shit from Peckinpah, and uh, and Peckinpah really re-listened to it and and really found out like, no, this is the right way to go about it. He he wanted the movie to be actually scored like with two acoustic guitars with just nothing but Mexican folk music. Oh, that'd be too obvious. I would love. I mean, it'd be cool to hear that version, hear but that. there's little moments like at the very end after like the giant battle sequence and um, Dick Thornton's just hanging out and he's like feeling sad about the death of Pike and he's sitting outside and the music just goes through this eerie, otherworldly territory that's unlike any other Western that's ever been scored. And I just find it bone chilling where Jerry Fielding takes the score. It's so unconventional and so unpredictable, but it gives the movie so much more depth and soul. So I think I would be inclined to side with Jerry Fielding on that particular debate. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Getting back to kind of the making of it. Um <coughs> Chalo Gonzalez is the guy I Are you catching some coronavirus on your end? I'm I'm hearing some cough Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <coughs> Sorry. No worries. Take, yeah, that's take, take, take a take a swig of Coors Light and wash it down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you'll know the edit points when I'm coughing like that. You can cut those cut those out. Um, so anyway, uh, but uh, Chalo Gonzalez is the guy who found the locations, and so like Mapache's stronghold, all that area was so isolated. It had no running water. It had no sewage. It had no electricity. Fucked up the dust. Apparently, the dust was unendurable for the crew. Well, what they what the what the crew soon soon realized is that they they started putting their the legs of their bed uh, in buckets of water, and they would wake up in the morning, and they would have numerous centipedes and scorpions drowned in these buckets. Oh, <laughs> fuck. So it was, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was rough. It was a rough shoot. Yeah. I like um, watching these movies, but goddamn, I don't know if I'd want to be there for the making of, I'm a total coward. Uh, like I live in New York oh, city yeah. for a reason. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's, it, it is, uh, yeah, it, it's insane. But Mapache stronghold was an abandoned winery, um, and there was an aqueduct, and that's the, and that's the art. That, that's where the arches are at, where they're walking, and all uh, and all that stuff. Um, Chalo also found the train. The train that's used in the movie was uh, um, used actually in the Mexican Revolution um, when they needed dynamite for the bridge ex- bridge explosion. The prop master, I guess, hadn't brought it, or or there was some kind of mix up. So he had to go find dynamite. So he actually he did he did a lot for the film. Um, but Peckinpah wanted a almost an entirely Mexican crew. The art director was born in Mexico. Um, he he really respected uh, Mexican labor, and uh, and of like the forty noted like cast members in the film, twenty four were uh, Hispanic. Did I say that already? <laughs> I mean, um, the Mexican cast in here is so goddamn good. Just having. Uh, Emilio Fernandez in there. Emilio Fernandez is like a Mexican institution. He's a major filmmaker and director in his own right. I mean, he's got 89 acting credits, but he's got 43 directing credits. That's 43 fucking movies. That's a lot of goddamn movies that he made in Mexico. 
Emilio Fernandez was considered the great Mexican director. Yeah. Um, he he was the guy, and um, and he just brings some authenticity. He, he's like ah, los gringos otra vez. Like he's just his performance is awe inspiring. And if this had been made in Hollywood by any other filmmaker, or, or perhaps even a little earlier, you probably would have had white people playing these parts, or they've been poorly written. This movie, it's like I don't. It, it's probably the most powerful, kick-ass interpretation of Mexico in any movie made in Hollywood ever. <laughs> that's no yeah. hyperbole well yeah and Emilio Fernandez is is you know he there, there's a lot of things about him that people say he had his own harem of women he of was uh, <laughs> he considered himself uh, an indio he his mother was a kickapoo it was a kickapoo Indian um, he there's there's a lot of stories about him shooting people he for sh- definitely for sure shot at least one person uh, but but there are a lot of stories that he shot a film critic that gave him a bad review. He shot a guy at a, uh, I can you know, he had a dinner that. party. Okay. Yeah. He, I do know he wanted to kill Alejandro Jodorowsky uh, after he'd made his first film he uh, in Mexico. He, yeah, there was a strike. Yeah. He needed a, there was something going on where he wanted to make Fondo Elise and yeah. he wasn't part of a – I can't remember the exact details. It's been years since I studied it. In any event, he was either not part of a union or there was a strike. He broke some rule, and uh, Jodorowsky's attitude was – he's like, why I need permission for make art? And I can sympathize <laughs> with that point of view as well. But Fernandez was he – basically, he, he didn't like the fact that um, Jodorowsky was a strike breaker. But Fondo Elise, it's a killer flick, so I'm glad it got made. Well, well, yeah, he also had to, I guess, make El Topo as short films that he then uh, put together. I, I guess if he made it in chapters as short films, he would somehow get some kind of uh, – he would somehow supersede the union or something. But the way Yodorowsky tells it – and Yodorowsky is like Peckinpah. I don't trust any of his interviews, although they're always fun to hear. He claimed that um, uh, Emilio Fernandez had seen his film – and there was something involving old ladies in it. I don't know. And uh, and Emilio Fernandez was like, "This is disrespectful to our mothers. I will kill him." So then uh, <laughs> Yodorowsky, uh found, uh, you know, he he found like uh, Emilio's favorite like tequila brand and sent him a bottle of tequila, and they become friends after that. So very nice. Um, but man, him as Mapache when he's sitting there, and when Angel has been essentially sentenced to death and he's standing there and everybody's laughing at him and Mapache just sitting there like groping and massaging this beautiful girl's tits as he's laughing at this guy oh. who he knows about to torture to death it's such an unbridled Peckinpahian performance that that even makes sense but I feel like he represents the true darkness lying at the heart of all of Peckinpah's best movies Oh, well, it also that groping was against her will. She did an interview. She said he was groping everyone and he was I, I, I did not want him to do that. So he, I guess he, he took his he, role as El Generalissimo a little bit too seriously. But like I love when like oh. uh, Lyle's like, look at a look at her licking the inside of that old General's ear. <laughs> and Angel's yeah. like, puta. And anyway, it's. Just uh, everything about Mapache, he's the perfect villain for this film. So he probably was just getting into character. He's the he is actually the main villain in one of the Magnificent Seven sequels, uh, the one that Warren Oates is in. Maybe it's called Return of the Seven. Gotcha. And uh, you see the you see the difference when you have a real filmmaker like Peckinpah using a guy like that because he's just he's just living it. Uh, another thing that people maybe don't 
know is that uh, he is the model for the Oscar statue. Emilio <laughs> Fernandez. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> no, I mean, look it up. <laughs> That's he amazing. For the sculptor of the Oscar. So uh, Emilio Fernandez is, uh, Mapache is the Oscar statue. And his name, uh, Waylon Green knew about, you know, like I said, Mexican culture. And so his name actually means, it, it, it means thief. And it's an old Aztec word for like a raccoon. So He's okay, born in 1904. Uh, wow, yeah. Emilio El Indio Fernandez Romo. But God damn, yeah, he is just a, he was just an institution unto himself. And I love the fact that he and Peckinpah got hooked up. And then, of course, he reused them and uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. And he was terrific there as well. Yes. And then also Pat Garrett, Billy Kid, maybe one of the worst scenes because he's <laughs> he was definitely not using uh, Emilio Fernandez correctly in that movie. He, he is not, he's not the meek guy that, you know, <laughs> no, he needs to be a tyrannical, corrupt warlord like in every movie yeah. in which he appears Ringo you fight with Mapache y hay mucho dinero muchachas bonitas I'll think about it exactly exactly so anyway yeah um, he gets Gordon, Gordon Dawson later is like a producer uh, uh, on his films and stuff but in this one he, he was the costumer he had worked on um, uh, Major Dundee, and he was familiar with Peck and Paw. He had aged the clothes in, in Major Dundee. His his part in that became bigger and bigger as Peck and Paw fired more and more people. So um, he did all the costumes, and um, he was there with the guy who was bringing all the all the pyrotechnics and all the ammo and stuff. And uh, when they were when they were going down to Mexico, and he t he told the guy like, "Hey, you're gonna need more than that." And the guy's like, "I've been in the business for for decades, you know. Fuck you." The guy runs out of ammo two days into the movie and gets fired and <laughs> and sent back. So um, so Gordon Dawson, he he worked with Peckinpah. He knew Peckinpah, and. Um, and uh, so and Peckinpah really wanted him on this movie. He paid him twice as much as any costumer ever got paid for a film up to that point. And it, it paid off. I mean, that battle scene, they went through thousands upon thousands of outfits and they were like basically had this like entire operation behind the scenes, drying and painting and reassembling all the outfits after they'd been shot and blown up and torn to pieces. But they just kept destroying wardrobe and reassembling it and putting it back on people and sending them out into the field. I mean, it's bananas just how much carnage the movie <laughs> kind of left in its wake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and and not only that, but the costumes are just there's there's so much thought behind them. Uh, and, and just in terms of like when you like, for example, when you look at the bounty hunters, um, when you see TC, he's got he's got like a newsboy cap and he's got this duster and that duster he's wearing is a duster that you would wear uh, in the early days of automobiles. And so you're you're getting a feeling of like encroaching civilization you're you're he's not just dressing them because it seems cool he's actually thematically pushing it forward um with with the character of coffer played by struther martin peckinpah said i want a 19 i want a 1913 hales angel and so that's how he dresses him and he looked at the, he looked at the outfit and, and peckinpah said it's good but it's not quite there you, you need something else so Gordon Dawson, he goes to his, you know, his box of costumes. He's got all these nuns' habits and stuff, and he gets this crucifix, and he goes, "Oh, I got it." So he takes this crucifix, he yanks the Jesus off of it, throws it in the ground, 
takes a bullet, wires it on there, then takes a blowtorch to this crucifix, and he goes, "That's the that's the thing. That's the end po- uh, point to it." Well, after he does this, he turns around. And he's got all the Mexican crew and cast, all these devout Catholics watching him, <laughs> horrified. And he's like, "Oh shit! You shouldn't have done that." But anyway, Peckinpah loved it. And so when when, when you look at the film, uh, Coffer, he's got this little. He's got a crucifix with a little bullet wired to it. Um, so it's one of those one of those great little details. But yeah, well, I think it's uh, the, this is the best wardrobe of any western ever made. When the four of them do the walk at the end. No heroes of a Western or anti-heroes of a Western have ever looked cooler. And when the four of them walk into the compound and the camera zooms back and they're stepping in, they look like the four horsemen of the apocalypse have arrived. And they all have like uniquely their own unique looks. But I, I just it never ceases to amaze me how iconic they all appear in their own right. But I think my favorite outfit has got to be... Lyle Gorch in the untucked shirt and he just looks so disheveled but so lethal and so casual and so cool and there's something about Warren Oates, his attire in the in the final battle scene that for me is the epitome of western cool yeah with the military belt and everything oh, yeah God, it's, fuck yeah yeah uh, the whole thing looks just like um I mean Lucian Ballard studied photography from the era to give it that like uh not that, that, that shallow depth of field and stuff and and just finding these actual locations, it's like um, Sergio Leone, in terms of like production design, re- really kicked it in the stratosphere with Carlos Simi and the things that they would do, these big theatrical uh, sets and overdressed stuff, and 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 it looks great and it's awesome. But the stuff Peckinpah does in this movie, the stuff he does in Pat Garrett and the Kid. Uh, it it's maybe not quite as baroque, but you look at it and it's just it feels real. It feels, feels so lived believable. in. Yeah, it feels it, so inevitable. It feels so perfect, but it feels like a total lived in world without a doubt. Yeah, you don't. I I don't ever doubt the reality of the town or the Mexican or, or the or the Mexican village or Mapache's stronghold or any of that. It all just almost has a certain documentary realism whereas look at the Sergio Leone movie I love I love those sets I love the uh, I love the the ideas but it's uh it, it it's uh it's it's baroque it's overdressed it, it, in a way that is that fits what he's going for the only thing that's never uh, quite been believable to me in the wild bunch though is Edmund O'Brien's makeup as Freddie Sykes to make him look 30 years older <laughs> I, I love the way he looks, and it's a great moment for an anecdote from my own college experience. But my second year at UVA, uh, my roommate and I, we were off at class, and we came back, and somebody had been in my room just getting fucked up watching movies, and they'd been watching The Wild Bunch, and they left a handwritten note by the VCR that said, play The Wild Bunch at like you know, like 22 minutes and 30 They had like a specific time kit, so we pop it in, we play it, and it's a close-up of Sykes laughing with like dip and chew spit going down his face, and he's like, you know, laughing about how they said, they, who the hell is they? And he starts doing his whole bit. He's so grotesque, but the reason he'd put that up is because he resembled my roommate so much because my roommate was known as Dirty Ned, uh, who had a big nasty beard, uh, loved chewing tobacco, loved fucking dip, loved drinking beer all goddamn day, and we just laughed and laughed and laughed. So I love Freddie Sykes, and I think his performance is remarkable, but there are times where you can kind of see through the makeup, and you're like, ah, it's not quite authentic. 
Yeah, no, that no, that's probably true. That I would say that, and like um, a couple of the Mexican whores, they got some like press on it, like eyelashes, or like they got some add on, like you know, there there are some some things where you can sort of see through it. Um, but I have to say, though, some of the women in this movie, some of the prettiest Mexican actresses I've ever seen, like the one who sticks her tongue out at War Notes after he's been, he's like, I don't need no bath. Well, me and Tector needed some of them women you've been hogging. Think you can take care of that boy? And they bring in Las Viejas, you know, the old women, these like old fat crones. And then he looks over at the yeah. hot one and she just sticks her tongue out to kind of mock him. And he's like, oh my God, like where'd y'all dig her up? She is a fucking 10 out of 10. I mean, it's a, there, are, there are some delectably beautiful women scattered throughout this. She's the one that I, 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 I should have wrote, wrote her name down, but she is the one that uh, gave the interview where she was talking about how Emilio Fernandez was groping her and gotcha. he was not. He, had, he did not have permission. Um, but those those big whores or whatever they 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 were supposedly true like real prostitutes that Peck and Paul got. Yeah, he wanted Warner Brothers to basically be guilty of soliciting yeah. prostitutes, so he ordered actual whores <laughs> yeah. instead of actresses. So that was his way of playing a little yeah. joke on the studio. And Ben Johnson had given gave an interview, and he said like uh, after he did that, he was no longer allowed to go down to Mexico with Peck and Paul. Because his wife had forbid him. <laughs> well, think about like, things- Ben Johnson. He came from the world of John Ford and movies like Rio Grande and things like that. And he had a, a bit of a of an issue with language in movies. Like at one point, he didn't want to do uh, Last Picture Show because he said there are too many words in it. And so he he had a, a, a bit of a code of his own that he, he had just a wholesome air about him. But I'm thrilled that he made it in here because he just murders the part as Tector. He's so fucking good. He and Lyle together, you can't even imagine them apart. And I, I, anytime they're not in the same scene together, they like they feel strangely incomplete. They need to be together on screen. But I love how <laughs> those girls, they bring him into the steam bath and he's like, I want you to meet my fiance. And he's like, they just got engaged. <laughs> yeah. It yeah, always no. makes me howl with laughter. Yeah, Ben Johnson, he he's one of the greats. And he's like, you "What know, you gonna do?" He's got. He's like, "What you gonna do?" Got to show a little class when like Lyle picks up a candle when he sees all these old ladies carrying the dead body of Teresa. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck was Lyle gonna do? Why is he picking up a candle? But he's so suspicious and he's so kind of juvenile in a lot of ways. And he's so he's like, one of those guys who's kind of afraid of the thunder. But I wish they'd let Lyle misbehave just a few moments longer to see what the fuck he was planning on doing in reaction to all those women. Well, you see, yeah, you do see Ben Johnson, uh, like, jump up and prose it or whatever. Like he, he, you could, you can see that he's been watching his brother his whole life. Yeah, like you know, he's been trying to keep him in line, and that's another funny peckabot in joke. All these, uh, you know, Warren Oates. Every time he appeared in a peckabot movie up to that point. Was all people were always telling him that he needed a bath and he didn't need one. Whether it was right <laughs> country, Major Dundee, and then this one, everyone's like, "You need a bath." I don't need no bath. Um, but uh, yeah, no Ben Johnson. Uh, you were saying he didn't like too many words. The studio didn't like too many words because in the part where he's in that vat w- with the horror, he, he some of the audio drops out. He pulls down and he takes 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 her breast out and he goes, "Hey." Hey, looky here, a nipple as big as my thumb. And they had to take that out of the movie. It was going to get an X. All wow. the, you could see the nipple, but you can't talk about it. So wow, <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. Watch the film, and you'll see that he's talking in that wine vat. Um, pull, you know, he's pulling her shirt down when he's like, let me see your cheat cheese or whatever. <laughs> and, 
And uh, but they cut out the part where he says, "Hey, looky here, the nipple is big as my thumb." So uh, anyway, I mean, how many evenings uh, in Peckinpah's life was he acting just like that, hanging hang out in a big vat of wine, basically treating it like a big ass hot tub? But yeah, there's so much about oh, this yeah. movie feels like a confession coming from the depths of Peckinpah's soul. But now that yes. we've kind of cracked open the movie and we've kind of addressed a lot of different things. Where do you want to go next? Because there's so many things we can still talk about from the dialogue to the behind the scenes, kind of larger than life tales, or the battles over the reception and the different cuts. Like, take this, you're my guest, so take your pick. Where, where do you want to take this conversation next? There's still so much good stuff left to explore. Uh, well, well, you know, um, I would, I would say there's a few other things that are. That are interesting to talk about. So, like, the prop master that had gotten fired for running out of ammo, like I told you before, um, there the best actual prop master in the business had wanted to become an actor, and Peckinpah had wanted him after he'd fired the other guy, and so he gave him a part in the movie. So, the prop master for the movie is actually um, the uh, the military guy, the army. The, the head army guy who, who um, you know, when they're robbing the train is, you know, like the, he's got that close-up where he turns away when the train hits the other one. He's got all those green recruits working on I love how when uh, Thornton is about to go pursue the Wild Bunch after the train's been separated and, and it's taken off. And he looks down at the recruits and he sees like 11-year-old boys. <laughs> and he looks back to his gutter yes. trash and is like, let's go. <laughs> and so it's better to stick with the gutter trash than the, uh, than the, the, the green recruits. Exactly. So, uh, so, so there's that. And then also, you know, the, 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 the squibs. The, the special effects crew had shown Peckinpah like how they were going to do the squibs. And, Pe- and Peckinpah was like, no, I don't want that. He, and he took a real gun and he, he fired it into this dummy that they had. And he said, that's what I want. So they made the squibs bigger. They put hamburger meat in them. They put more blood in them. They put them on both sides of their bodies. I guess apparently this is the first film to do that. The most painful shot I've ever seen in a movie, it's not even that gross, but it just feels so real, is when the green recruits are riding up behind Thornton and his men, and they're kind of trapped between the bridge and the green recruits, and Thornton's men turn around in a panic and start shooting at the soldiers. And I think... It's either TC or maybe, but somebody shoots one of the soldiers and it goes right through them. And it's yeah. so real and so painful. And the way the actor moves, I'm just like, oh, did they actually fucking shoot that guy? It looks so convincing, but it just, it, it sells them. They sell me on it every time. So that, that, that portrayal of violence. And then also just like that, that, that opening, the opening shootout, the, the way it's cut, like, I guess the original cut of that opening shootout was like 20 minutes long. It all made sense. It was all cut pretty standard, and then Lou Lombardo took it and chopped it up into what it is. And that opening shootout, the POV, is different from the end shootout. The POV of the opening shootout is of the townspeople. It's it's the chaos of what's going on. Whereas at the end of the film, the the, the gunfight is is done um, from the bunch's point of view, um, and uh, and. I, I guess, you know, they had all these extras from the Mexican army. And at one point when they started shooting that final shootout, they were they, they, they had their prop guns and everything, and they were shooting. And Ernest Borgnine, who was a combat veteran, 
he he listened to the, the shots. He said, "Those aren't blanks. Those are live rounds. The whiz like that you hear. Those are live rounds. These guys were firing live rounds initially by accident. Nice. <laughs> so they they had, the, they had the Mexican army firing live rounds. Um, Ernest Borgnine Standin was actually uh, a guy who had fought with Patton, uh, uh, and uh, he he wept when 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 he saw the like the the violence that the, uh, that the, that they were filming it. It, it 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 was just there was a feeling that what they were doing was different from yeah. anything that and nothing and, like that had ever been caught on film before. Like one of the first early kind of private clandestine screenings was for Scorsese, Jay Cox, and a few other people, and they just looked at each other in a, like a hushed state of stunned silence afterwards. They could not believe what they'd just seen. But I love how like right before that battle begins. There's this beautiful moment of sustained tension where Mapache has been killed and they're looking around and they've essentially bluffed the entire compound and they're all kind of giggling and laughing. It's like at that point, the movie could have ended. They pulled it off. They could just walk out and they could leave. And Pike just looks at that German guy and shoots him then and there. He's like, fuck it. Because this is their, I don't know if you would say it's like a suicide run, but obviously what what else could it be than when four people decide to take on 200 men but it's one of the most defiant moments of pike's whole arc as a character that they've pulled off what they wanted to pull up they've killed mapache and he's like nope let's let's get it going again and that's when the battle really just unfolds and it's it's almost a cliche now complimenting it but every time you watch it there's so many little details like oats screaming as he fires the gatling gun that's one of the images on the poster for wrong reel for me it's one of the most iconic iconic moments in all of cinema or when will uh, when pike gets shot by a girl and he says bitch and he turns around and shoots her or when he says to ernest borgnine like come on you lazy bastard and they they get back into the battle it's awe-inspiring and i have no idea how many times i've seen that battle scene every single time it just shreds you into a million pieces yeah, it's it, it, that's uh, that's in, that's interesting because in the in the actual script, and this is the Peckinpah rewrite. That pause is not there. Uh, they go there, they, they shoot Mapache, and then all hell breaks loose. Also, what's not there is the Wild Bunch in the script never get control of the machine gun. The German guy gets control of the machine gun, and he accidentally starts shooting his own troops or his own guys. Um, uh, as seen in the film, but they never actually make it to the machine gun. Um, but but uh, in it, in the actual ma- and, and like Pike gets bayoneted, and uh, it's it, there's a lot of big differences with the script. The script opens with a narrator uh, that really laying everything on thick, like these are men past their time, and uh, there there are a lot of things that don't that they luckily kind of dropped that wouldn't have played well. Um, there wasn't going to be a bridge explosion. It was going to be they were going to be going on a ferry w- with a cable, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, they were like, oh, you're going to blow up another bridge. Like, come on, come on. That's so cliched. And so there, so there are big differences. Um, uh, there 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 was there were a lot of crazy things that were going on on the set. Um, you know, R.G. Armstrong was originally going to be Harrigan, uh, the railroad Ooh, guy. But that would have been good. Yes, but so you got Albert Decker. Now Albert Decker was uh I don't know if you know him his history, but he's he's like in his sixties when he's making this movie. He goes around the set with a thirteen year old girl introducing her as his wife. Uh, so he was an insane dude. 
And he ends up dying like through autoerotic autoerotic asphyxiation with like dirty shit written on his chest, <laughs> like with a lipstick, like like cocksucker or some weird weird stuff. <laughs> that dude was a weird fucking dude. And um, and uh, some people think it was a murder, uh, but it was ruled a suicide or at least an accidental suicide. Yeah, I'm reading here. Uh, he never. He was 62. That he died before the movie even came out. What a fucking freak. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. So um, when he's there saying, "I represent the law," as one of the most despicable villains in westerns, the real guy might have been worse. I don't know. <laughs> wow. With his 13 year old bride. Um, but uh, so anyway, Roy Signer was going to be on this. He was on the set. Um, he's the one that got Bo Hopkins involved in the film. Um, but he actually got kicked out of Mexico because he got drunk one night with a friend and they were dropping condoms full of water off of balcony and they they hit a Mexican official. So he got kicked. out. So Roy Signer, the stunt guy who came up with the whole movie, wasn't wasn't allowed to actually do any stunts in the film because he got kicked out of Mexico for dropping condoms full of water on one of the um, Mexican officials. So, um, but uh, uh, well, one of the stories that it, I like, it, I heard from LQ Jones, and I think I brought this up perhaps one of our previous Western episodes, but this is the way he, or at least the way I remember it, the way he described it at that screening I attended, that when they were coming home on the, uh, from the shoot one day and Peckinpah wanted to stop at some bar, so he went in there with most of the principal cast and of course, as soon as everybody's in there and having their drinks and having a good time, Peckinpah decides to start a fight. And suddenly you have a situation where <laughs> a couple of the actors are cornered in the bar with like knives and broken bottles being pointed in their direction. And they look around they're like, where the hell is Sam Peckinpah, who had, that the first sign of danger, had gone out to the car and gotten in the car and told the driver to take him home to the hotel. And he just left his <laughs> actors behind. So once again, yeah. to what degree that's something that the actors have embellished or shared over the years, who knows? But it seems appropriate. <laughs> Elkie Jones said that like uh, on their days off, they would go drink and they almost always ended up in jail at one point. Uh, so who knows? I know that at one point him and Peckinpah had a falling out. Uh, I, I don't know if they ever reconciled before his death, but Peckinpah was <coughs> a pretty, a pretty harsh customer. So yeah, I mean, his, like, it's a weird thing where when people talk about his work style, sometimes they're amazed at his approach. Like at one point when they're shooting the scene, when they've uh, when they're looking at the silver rings, silver rings, you butt them's washers. But it's a big dialogue heavy scene. The actors didn't know their lines, and Peckinpah very quietly but very angrily said, "You're here as actors. I expect actors to know their lines. And if you're unable to learn your lines, I will replace you with actors who can." And they're all like, "Oh shit!" So they all went off to the side, memorized their lines, and it became one of the best scenes of the movie. What's our next move? And I figure Alguverdi's the closest. Three days, maybe. We'll get the news and drift back to the border. Maybe a payroll, maybe a bank. Maybe that damn railroad. That damn railroad you're talking about sure as hell ain't getting no easier. And you boys ain't getting any young either. <laughs> we gotta start thinking beyond our guns. Those days are closing fast. All your fancy planning and talking damn near got us shot to pieces over a few lousy bags of washers. While this was going to be me and Tector's last job before we quit and headed south. 
We spent all our time and money are getting ready for this. You spent all your time and money running whores and Honda while I spent my stake setting it up. Hell, I should have been running whores instead of stealing army horses. <laughs> while you was doing all that planning, me and Tector was getting our bell rope pulled by two. Two, man, you hondo horse! <laughs> <laughs> and Pike was dreaming of washers. <laughs> you were matching whores <laughs> in tandem. What's <laughs> that? That's one behind the other. Oh. <laughs> That's right, that's what we's doing. <laughs> but then you hear about just like, like his really mean, nasty, vindictive side where people could make pretty minor mistakes and he would act like the person had killed the movie and want to have him fired. And he had a petty, dark side, which made him oftentimes very difficult to work with. But creatively, I have a feeling he's just, he's so inspired and he knows what he wants, and anything that is an obstacle to his vision has got to be destroyed. And so I have some sympathy, but man, it's like it's hard to when your people are putting in the hours and they're living with centipedes trying to eat them in their sleep and that sort of thing. Like, you got to cut people a little, a little bit of slack if they fuck up just a, just a tad on the set. Yeah. Well, LK Jones also said that Peck and Paul every, kept, wanted to keep everyone off balance because he was off balance and that was the only way he could function. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I honestly, when I, when I hear about all the weird things that, that Peck and Paul did, he did acts of really great kindness. Um, but then could be, yeah, very petty and, and, and awful. And it sounds like the behavior of a drunk. It's just one minute, one minute he loves you, one minute he hates you, and you know, and, and and that's really who he was. There was a there was actually a family who they were Mexican, but they they had uh, they had they they had been living in America. They came to Mexico, and I, I'm not exactly sure what had happened. Um, they were Mexicans. They were visiting relatives or something, and they got stranded, and um, they had no way of getting home. And Pekapa cast them in the movie as extras, and actually. The part when the, when the bunch goes into um, Mapache's stronghold, the kids are dropping rocks on their heads like pebbles, and Ben Johnson looks up, you know, and um, that th those those are the kids of that family, and Peckinpah ba basically paid their way home. So he had real acts of kindness. It reminds me of the Wild Bunch themselves, where like they are thieves and murderers. However, they'll give rifles to Indios so that they can fight Mapache, or they'll risk everything and give up everything to try to save the life of their friend Angel. Because like in one in the in the same scene where they'll leave Freddie Sykes to be chewed up by the buzzards because he's been wounded, they can also decide to go back and try to save their friends. So they're, they're wildly inconsistent when and where they choose to apply their various acts of kindness, which sounds very similar to Peckinpah himself. Yeah, well, also like the lady, you know, in the final uh, uh, scene that you mentioned, who gets shot and, and, and Holden calls her a bitch, you know. Um, that was a lady, her name was Yolanda Ponce. She was actually a stunt lady. And she is the lady who gets trampled at the beginning, that, gotcha. that beginning gun. And um, she actually got hurt. The, the the horse actually like 
like stepped on her pelvis or did something. Anyway, Peckinpah put her in almost all of his movies. Whenever he could, he he hired her as a stunt woman. He hired her as an actress. And so when he saw that your commitment was as real as his, he respected that. Or if you stood up to him, he respected that. And and Peckinpah at this time he was he was not he was he was l- like lessening his drinking. Still drinking, but not as much. He was an insomniac. He had these horrible, bloody hemorrhoids. Yeah, I've heard about that. He would leave and, blood stains on his chairs. Yeah, they said that he wore, he wore white jeans, the worst possible choice. <laughs> <laughs> that, was his, that was his costume. He loved his outfit. Down his pants. And they and they uh, and they uh, somebody uh, on the crew commented, "You could smell him before you see him." Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So he was making this film just through the most agonizing, you know, horrible pain. Just pure um, adrenaline. Yeah, I know like at the end of the movie, he was so exhausted, he just broke down and just was like weeping and sobbing uncontrollably. Like he just, he gave, he squeezed everything out of his body that he had to give and he demanded the same of the crew. Whatever their limits were, he went far past it and it was just like, they, it's like when you play, a, when you're, whether you're talking about a football game or like an MMA contest, like leave everything in the cage. They, they left it all in the cage. So he wanted that sort of commitment and, 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 you know, so a lot of crazy things happen on, on, on set. And so like, um, like with the bridge explosion now, um, one of, uh, um, uh, Yakima Kanut. I don't know how to say that dude's name. <laughs> I, I've heard it pronounced a bunch of different ways. Sometimes I say Yakima, sometimes I say Yakima, but the guy who did all John Wayne stunts and stagecoach, and he also choreographed the chariot race and Ben Hur, one of the all-time great stuntmen. Yes, who who was actually a native, an Indian from Oklahoma, I believe. Uh, his sons were also stuntmen, and they worked on the film. You know, the Mexican crew did a lot. Peckinpah loved his Mexican crew and everything, but they'd never worked with dynamite before. So he's looking at this Mexican crew, and he's like, these guys, what? They, they got the dynamite to do the bridge explosion. He doesn't – he's like, I don't trust this. They're putting twice as much dynamite than they need. So he, he made them put less dynamite. He saw one Mexican crew member hammering dynamite into place. And he was like, no, you did not do that. <laughs> like, that is not good. So he actually went to Gordon Dawson and he said, look, the guy who's hitting the button, if we drop before the explosion goes off, we're going to be killed. So if anything seems like mistimed or not right, I'm giving you a club. You need to hit this guy on the fucking head with a club so he does not blow us up. So, <laughs> so uh, luckily, everything worked out. But yeah, Gordon Dawson was ready to just club this guy so he would not hit the charge to blow up. I mean, up it reminds all- me a bit of when uh, fucking Tector lights a stick of dynamite and throws it yeah. at Freddy when he's trying to take a shit. And he's like, damn it. <laughs> he cuts the fuse. But people just exactly. fucking around with dynamite on the set. and like, Or like later on when they're like threatening to blow up the, uh, the machine gun with the dynamite. I mean, oh, they are just, yeah. I, I I don't want to go anywhere near dynamite with people who don't know what the fuck they're doing. But when you mentioned the train, what it reminds me, like with the train sequence when they're first robbing it, it's this incredible masterclass in sustained tension and suspense and just like little things like when they're back in the train up a couple of feet and then you get this rapid fire cutting after the, tr- the two cars briefly make contact. And it's like, I think everything you need to learn or could ever want to learn 
about visual storytelling technique when it comes to shot composition, editing, depth of field, etc. Visual. I mean, it's all in this movie. A lot of people say Citizen Kane is a textbook for visual storytelling, but I might be inclined to believe that with the Wild Bunch, you can learn all that you need to know about using film as a photographic medium for telling stories. And the older I get and the more I see it, the more I'm inclined to think that way. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, it's it's the best train robbery in movie history, I would say. The end gunfight is the best gunfight in movie history. Um, maybe the best action scene in movie history. Um, it's, it, it, he's operating on just a, com- a completely different level. His, his, Peckinpah's a weird director when you try to isolate like feel like like frames from his films they don't stick out they don't have a power because he's a guy that's shooting for montage he's a guy that's shooting for editing he's not shooting to give you clever compositions yeah he's not a single camera setup guy like, there are a lot of filmmakers who are single camera filmmakers where every single shot is very meticulously constructed he shoots like he's a volume shooter <laughs> and then he finds the movie after the fact you yeah you see some of the outtakes i think it's on one of the dvds and it, they're they're so loose and and uh it's they're 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 sloppy they're zooming into things and and uh but but he puts he's putting it all together he he's going from that like eisenstein school and and honestly i think with at least this film he surpasses eisenstein he surpasses uh kurosawa's use of montage because he's taking it to a level of complexity uh that they don't that they obviously point to but but no one had pushed it this far. This is the next step in the way editing is done. This is this movie had the most cuts of all time until I think any given Sunday or something, some Oliver Stone movie. But uh, it 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 had the you know it, it 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 it's using like like techniques from silent film that people had. I don't know if they just tossed it aside or 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 what. But he's really pushing the form. Yeah, you have to. If you go back to like Ziga Vertov and like Man with the Movie Camera and some of these really wildly innovative Russian films from the twenties, that's really the only place where you can see the sophistication of the kind of montage that's been employed in this. But it's funny how when you're watching it, it doesn't really call attention to itself. Where even when you're seeing several shots in a row, some of which are you know fractions of a second long. It all flows together and feels invisible in a lot of ways, and it doesn't feel jarring. Whereas people a lot oftentimes will say, "Oh, that movie's got too many cuts," and they'll say, oh, "It's like MTV style cutting," and they'll use it as a criticism. But what that means is like that's sloppy editing. The editing in this is as refined and poetic and sublime as editing as an art form can get. No, and that's a good point, and that and that's one of the things about about slow motion violence is that you have these you have these guys who make do they take they take what Peckinpah does and then they try to incorporate incorporate it themselves so but they don't they don't use it correctly they they've learned the wrong things from it and to a certain respect the way Peckinpah uses slow motion is not a show-off thing he's not 
gonna be he's not like this is the cool stunt i'm gonna make you watch it's it it's not nicholas cage time. running toward the frame with a plane exploding behind him or something stupid like in fucking uh what was it con air <laughs> oh yeah 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 or even he like even like the the way that wachowskis use it it's just like here's something really cool and let's just show it to you and it's like no 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 the way Peckinpah uses slow motion is that the slow motion itself is not the point. The slow motion is the is the complement of what's going to happen in other parts. So you have a slow motion part, then he then he cuts in real time, and that real time seems so much faster, so much more intense because you, that because you're seeing something. It's it's like being on a roller coaster. It's like the hill up before the drop. You know, you don't do the slow motion drop. You do the slow motion before the drop. And that's the way he's using it. And he's you can cutting follow, it so like, so many different stories simultaneously. In the opening battle scene, like, one guy's falling off a roof, and you see, he keeps cutting to and from that person falling over and over and over again. But you're seeing close-ups of children hugging each other in terror. Or you're seeing close-ups of, like, people colliding and falling through windows off the horses. And as and then you keep cutting back to the guy falling. I guess if you wanted to, pro, like, extend it, you could almost turn it into, like, a self-parody or turn it into humor. But they find that perfect <laughs> balance where it works and it just it makes emotional sense even if in terms of like logical sequential time you're breaking things into a million little pieces yeah exactly and that's the other and and i and i think that's the other thing that people get wrong about about the way he portrays violence is that it's not realistic he's not doing realistic violence he's doing emotionally he's he's going for emotional realism he's not he's not showing you the way violence really is um, and, and when movies do that, it doesn't, it, it doesn't work. He's showing you, he's showing you the eroticism of it. Yeah. He's it's like when people you- talk about like whether or not something feels realistic, but if you want, I mean, I'll watch a lot of MMA. Those are, those are fights. Granted, it's a sport, but it's still, those are fights. They look and feel and sound totally different from something like John Wick chapter three. And I, I love both. I can live with both and I can, I can appreciate both for what they are. But when people say, oh, that, that fight's so unrealistic, they don't really know what they're talking about because they don't actually watch fights. Well, it's also just like the level of slaughter that is in this film, at least in that opening. I mean, there, there's no corollary with that in the actual, like, American West. I mean, it definitely has a Jesse James, like, Northfield, Minnesota uh, vibe to that opening gunfight or, 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 you know, whatever. But it's just, like, the, the level of slaughter is so beyond actual any, – any, any truth – um, I mean, but what's that line about the Warner Brothers publicity department claimed that like more rounds of ammunition were fired on this movie than in the entire Mexican Revolution? Like they fired like ninety thousand rounds. So it's like that shows you just how many bullets were fired making this fucking movie. Well, it's the thing that it's like it's like there's cinematic rea- reality and then there's reality reality, and there's really no way to gauge what reality reality is, but. With cinematic reality, things have to be a little dirtier. They have to be a little dustier. They have to be a little bloodier to to get you to get the point. Yeah, a heightened so, sense of experience. Yeah, and 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 that's what he's going for, and that, and that you know that's what Peckinpah has always been going for, and his use of montage. Uh, th- this is like you know this is probably the high water mark of Peckinpah, but in the in in another way, it's unfair to say that because he he still develops beyond these movies his use of montage by the time he gets to like the way he uses it in the getaway now the getaway is not my favorite peckinpah movie it's more of a popcorn film but but it's still a fucking blast 
when you when he but but he's doing he does things that are so artful in that movie when Steve McQueen is looking at that watering hole like where he's gonna and he's imagining jumping in with Ali McGraw and you're like is he imagining it are they going uh, are we having are we cutting two different times at the same time is it all in his magic you don't know but the I way he doing uses, that sequence he's like spitting water in her face <laughs> yeah but but the way he well the way he cuts it into him watching it seeing what's gonna happen or Matt you know it's and he does that, and then and then he develops it even more with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid with the chickens being shot and stuff. So he's he he's still working with that, and he's still pushing it forward. And and those scenes in the getaway, I mean, they must have they must have influenced like Out of Sight and the Limey and other th- things where they're where you're where you're watching two different things happen at the same time, cutting together and. So he he was still always pushing montage. He was always pushing the, those themes. This is maybe the only time where it all came together perfectly. Well, but, I think uh, also I, because his producer Phil Feldman, with whom he had a massive falling out because of the different cuts of the film when it came out, but Phil Feldman was apparently one of those producers who it reminds me a bit of John Houseman and Orson Welles, where Orson Welles was able to do some of the best work of his career when he had producer John Houseman setting the stage for him. And while Orson Welles continued to grow as an artist throughout his career up through the 70s, he never had those conditions again where he could really thrive. And I feel like, man, it's such a shame that Warner Brothers, Phil Feldman, and Peckinpah had this parting of the ways during the various release cuts of this film because I feel like if Feldman and Peckinpah stayed together who knows what they could have accomplished because he seems like he was the only producer who knew how to give just enough room for Peckinpah to hang himself, but not so much that the whole thing would go flying off the rails. And this is like the one time in his, in his life where he had the budget, the producer, this like all, all the perfect ingredients. And I totally agree that he continued to evolve as an artist, but as a complete total experience where you don't have to make any concessions when you're describing it, this is the one. And what's also interesting is how I get really frustrated with the different versions of movies out there because I always feel like Amazon and all these streaming platforms, they always show or have make available the wrong versions. But somehow, magically, over time, the right versions of The Wild Bunch keep being made available. And somehow, just this is one of those rare situations where the good guys won when it came to film history and the right version of the movie finally becoming the one that most people are consuming. Well, the way that I even first heard about this movie was, I think I was watching Siskel and Ebert as like a 12 or 13 year old and it was the re-release and they were talking about it. And I kind of thought it was something like the dirty dozen, like something of that nature. Um, and uh but uh i eventually uh, so it was always kind of in the back of my uh, back of my mind and a couple of years later i i ended up watching it just because i'd gotten really into action films and this is this is this is the movie that got me into westerns really and um i i did watch the cut uh that doesn't have the flashbacks like an old vhs um and uh, you know it's it's uh, and also misses that big battle scene where you see Mapache fighting Pancho Villa. 
Yeah, and it gives it gives a little bit more backstory. It gives a little bit more. Uh, it, it it gives a little bit more backstory to Mapache himself. And 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 one of the unfortunate things is that that little kid that Mapache is trying to impress, he was supposed to be the one that kills Pike at yeah, the end yeah, of the yeah, movie. But, but they couldn't like they couldn't yeah, find somehow, him or something. <laughs> they screwed up. The, some, somehow they they screwed it up. They couldn't get him back. But there are there are all those themes that kind of run throughout the movie. But um, I I mean I watched this. I was blown away by the, the i mean the quality of the of the violence of course that's the thing that any teenage boy is gonna is gonna latch on to but just also just how like it i mean it, it really is amazing that a film of this scale of this brutality of this kind of morality was ever made yeah um it's very existence it, 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 it defies everything we know about showbiz and somehow it's emerged like perfect and intact and been protected because whether you're a teenager just enjoying the story and the spectacle or as an adult you're just enjoying the rich characters and the just extraordinary dialogue there's no other movie like it before or since yeah and 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 that's the thing and that's one of the one of the differences is between like Peckinpah and like Leone because those Leone movies were also like a blast in the face of like oh this is a guy that's just out for himself or whatever but the man with no name is never going to use a woman for his shield is you know what i mean like he still has a heart he helps you know he helps out eventually i mean he might fuck um, over his friend tuco and let him and let him <laughs> leave yeah. him in the desert but, but yeah Tuco's a bad guy anyway yeah. you're right so uh, and 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 that's the difference between peck and Pond and leone is that leone the way he makes his movies is he's always kind of trying to trick you but you're always know that you're in safe hands so his scenes are always devised where you think it's going to be this way and then it turns out it's this way and and you know he's going to go in and he's going to go buy a gun but no actually he's robbing the place and he's doing, you know, and that's Leone plays those tricks and it's fun. You're always in, it's grittier, it's it's, it's rougher, but you're in safe hands. With Peckinpah, you are not in safe hands. And so as like a, like a teenager seeing this, like, whoa, like I was blown away. Like, what the fuck? This is, a, these are, these are horrible, bad people. These are the worst. These are, these guys are worse than any villains. Yeah, I mean, in the first couple of minutes, when you see crazy Lee, like licking inside an old lady's ear and it's just like yeah. murdering people in cold blood, you're like, oh, this isn't. And that was, not, that was not scripted. The, he Peckinpah was not getting the reaction from that lady that he wanted. So he told Bo Hopkins, like, go up and lick her. <laughs> and, and then he, he got the actual disgust that he want disgust from her that he wanted. But it's like so. you will have scenes like that where like these are the most depraved human beings ever caught on film. But then you'll have the flip side where you have these moments that are so profoundly moving. Like after Pike's given that big lecture about how we're not going to get rid of anybody, we're going to stick together just like it used to be. Then when he tries to get up in his saddle and the stirrup breaks and the, the gorches are kind of laughing at him, and then how he drags himself up under the saddle and he's kind of exhausted and he's slumped over and the music swells and then he rides up and he's just acting with his back. And the music, it make, if you're not weeping openly from seeing just this, the, uh, this remarkable character actor performance unfold before your eyes, I just don't know if this is the movie for you. But those kinds of scenes where nothing's being spoken that get me every time. Or then you have like the, the mirror image of that scene later on 
after they've robbed the train and Pike's kind of holding his leg gingerly in place in order to get up onto his saddle and Tector Gorch rides up to him and he's kind of appraising him. And instead of laughing at him this time, he just hands him a bottle. And then like that lighthearted music kicks in and they all start taking swigs. And then like, of course, when Angel takes his swig, it's like you hear the, the Mexican trumpets kick in and it's just pure unbridled visual storytelling at its best. And you can't script that shit. It's just that is when you're in the hands of a master filmmaker doing what film is supposed to do. For me, it's the essence of the entire art form of cinema. Yeah, and, and, and I guess that, that bottle sequence, you know, where the guy's drinking the bottle and the guy has the empty bottle at the end was something that Peckinball had done on stage when he was working in the theater. So he kind of brought that with him. Um, he, I guess he always just kept that in his back pocket. But, but yeah, no, it's, it, um, I mean, get it, going back to like the Peckinpah's like religiosity is that, you know, apparently he carried a Bible around with him everywhere. And, um, I mean, you know, Ride the High Country is a, you know, a, well, a, like L.Q. Jones has said, all of his movies are religious movies. Ride the High Country is especially, but this one is too, because this one is one where it's saying there, there, there's a transcendent, there is a transcendent value beyond the law because law civilization all of that is corrupt there is a there's an inherent value in the individual but peckinpah is not going to give it to you easy peckinpah is like in a way and and um i'm not trying i'm not i'm not trying to make him and as as like a good christian or anything like that it's something that he carried with him whether or not he lived it or whatever with it he wrestled with it but he did not live it (laughs) yes (laughs) um but but uh, but he has sort of the to me and, and 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 honestly you could watch the wild bunch and read it as just nihilism you could and uh, you wouldn't necessarily be I mean, that's wrong. That's the ants and the scorpion in the fire. It's like it's everybody's yeah. just devouring each other, but it doesn't matter because you're all going to get burned up anyway. Yeah, and 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 uh, that's you know um, that reading isn't wrong. It's it's just it's a little simple. But any reading of this movie is going to be simple because um, Peckinpah is not going to give you anything easy. Well, I love his description of it when he said, I wasn't trying to make an epic. I was trying to tell a simple story about bad men and changing times. The Wild Bunch is simply what happens when killers go to Mexico. The strange thing is that you feel a great sense of loss when these killers reach the end of the line. And it's true. These are horrible people, but you do feel this incredible sense of loss. And it's probably because of these moments like, what should have been like the moment for the intermission and probably was the intermission during the theatrical cut when, uh, when Pike says to Dutch, this is our last go around Dutch this time we do it right. And you're, you're so inspired and you get the sense like maybe these guys are going to get a chance to pull off this one big score and then back off. And of course, as earlier Dutch said, back off to what? <laughs> like, but you do get the sense that maybe they are going to get a chance to pull it off this time. And the, the profound sense of loss you feel at the film is very tough to put into words, but it's, it's haunting, even though you shouldn't feel any remorse for these characters. Well, yeah. And, 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 and that's the thing is that, is that and and it was it, and we're going to talk about it the peck and paw like knockoffs and and it's kind of it's the difference between what he's doing and what they're doing is they're going you know blood nihilism nastiness and you're going to see that um 
But even Peckinpah he, made some Peckinpah knockoffs toward the end, like Convoy. I enjoy, but there's some scenes <laughs> where like this is a Peckinpah knockoff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but 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 going back to there's there is a transcend transcendental through line. I don't think it's actually just pure nihilism. I I I do liken him to like a Flannery O'Connor, um, who was a you know a religious author and. Yeah, Brought Wise Blood, which Houston made a brilliant movie out of. Yeah, or, I mean, if you've ever read uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and the whole thing is about a family being murdered by a serial killer, and 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 the whole the whole the, the weird aspect of it is that the old lady, um, who's supposed to be this good Christian, it's only in those end moments where she actually finds the, that transcendence. And the guy says she would have been a good woman, uh, had she had someone there to shoot her every minute of her life, <laughs> and uh, and it's 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 one of those things where, um, like Flannery O'Connor said, it, Flannery O'Connor, you know, one of her quotes is like, "There's there's nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism," and I think that's the that that's the operative mode that Peckinpah is working in, is that you're watching these guys who are. The worst possible people. They are condemned from the beginning. You are watching them do the worst thing. And somehow they find something that transcends who they are. And that is their code. The code that they don't ever live up to. Pike never lives up to his code. The reason Deke Thornton is following him. It's one of those great like, like screenwriter things like, oh... His past is literally following him yeah. in the form of he's dog, yeah. dogging him at his heels. But even with Deke, he's so tormented by like when in action, you'll see Deke and he's like a fucking sniper just taking people out. It's like, God damn, he would have been like the best member of the Wild Bunch if he were still with him. But I love how he's going to follow through because he gave his word. But once again, it's all about that code. It's like, you know, gave his word to a railroad and it's like, it's still his word. And he's like, that's not what counts. It's, it's who you give it to. They're, they're always wrestling with like what their code even is. Cause it's not like they're all in complete agreement about what that code is. But once again, Dutch just lines when he's like, yeah, like we ain't nothing like him. We don't hang nobody. I hope these people here someday kick them and the rest of that scum like them right into their graves. I feel like Dutch is the moral compass in spite of the fact that He's still a killer. He's still a thief. But like when they decide to have sex with them hookers at Mapacho's place at the end, Dutch is sitting outside. He's like cutting a stick or whatever. He's not indulging. So I feel like he's probably the closest to whatever their code or the ideal that code is uh, of all of them. Well, well, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and also like Angel is their conscience to a certain degree. But the thing is, Peckinpah is never going to give it to you easy. He's yeah. never going to be like... This is the good dude because Angel, because of his code, because that because he is actually a patriot to his village. The Wild Bunch doesn't give a shit about yeah, anything. My people, Mexico. They, they they pay they pay lip service to the group, but they don't actually follow through with it. They leave crazily. They shoot um uh what's his name Bud or I I, I can't remember now, but the guy who got shot in the face with with the buckshot. Um. So the, so Pike doesn't actually live by his code, even though he, he he tells the Gorsh brothers we stick together, but he doesn't ever ever actually do that. And so Angel is the only one that has anything that he's truly that he could truly actually fight for. The bunch doesn't have it. And 
so they go they go to the village and and, and the reason it, it, it's so idyllic and the thing is Peckinpah is guilty of portraying maybe a simplistic view of Mexico in those scenes but that is purposeful you have to have that it's it's lush it's beautiful the rest of the movie is arid and dusty and awful it's the only scene in the movie that actually has like any water <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and but also the bunch they're dirty. The Gorks brothers, you know, they're talking like that. What you quoted, you know, your sister and your mama too, and your grandma too. But once they get there, they're not being dirty. They're not being lustful, licentious. They they're like are, children. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they are like children. So you're, what you're getting is you're getting a, like an Eden here. You're getting a thing where the bunch is seeing, a, a, seeing something uh, beyond what they've gone for. They've sold themselves out for um, even though they're living, trying to live beyond civilization, they're doing it for what? For money? For uh, dollars worth of steel holes? So they're seeing. Oh, that line the about the dollars worth of steel holes makes me scream. I almost pee my pants every single time. He's like, we just shot our way out of that town for a dollars worth of steel holes. Like, that might be Warren's yeah. best line reading in the whole movie. Yeah, exactly. So, So you are seeing that. And you say so you are seeing this sort of Eden that they've that they've sold out, but there's but you know there is that snake, which is the character of Mapache, because because you know uh, and Teresa, um, you know Angel's girl, who he had loved, and Mapache took her, and you know so so you're already going to see that discord. It, it it's only it's only a temporal thing that they're seeing what they could have done. But they're condemned. They are condemned from the beginning. But the thing is, Angel being this 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 character who 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 is the most um uh you know um I I you know idealistic um, or idealistic he because of that that's what makes him kill Teresa when he meets her and that's a scene that people kind of say is misogynistic or whatever. But the way that the actress plays it is so deep like you know it's tearing her apart oh, the way she's crying but, as angel what gets basically uh, dragged away from her yeah it's a brilliant little role even though she doesn't have laughing. much to do and the way she presents that uh that animal to mapache and how she's making a whole performance out of this grand gesture and i love how they're both performing for the crowd it's it's just delightful stuff even as it's there's no subtitles but you get the sense of what's going on. But we've been talking, but for people who don't know, before we started recording, I made a deal with David Lambert that we would not record any longer than the total running time of the movie. And we're definitely flirting with that. But because this is the Wild Bunch and it's a special occasion, I'm going to bend the rules. But now that we're kind of moving into the final stage of this conversation, we're going to focus just on the essentials, the most important things to us about this movie. And I've said most of what I want to say and there are other lines that I could call attention to. There are other brief little moments I could like really underline as being essential. But this is did the David Lambert show, so I'm going to turn you loose. What What's the final topic that you would like to explore as we bring this episode slowly but surely toward a close? Well, like I was saying before, is that Peckinpah is going to make his points, and, and the film... Is so thematically sound, I, I believe, that he can pull away from it. He he told um, Alfonso Aru, I don't know how to say his name. Um, Alfonso Arau. Arau. Um, 
he said he he one night he he asked him he said do you like cliches and he said no I hate I hate cliches and Peckinpah said I love cliches I said he he said you know um, cliches that's a way that an audience first relates to something they 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 can relate to it shorthand the the, the uh, what a filmmaker needs to do is he needs to love the cliche he needs to embrace embrace the cliche and then he needs to work against it and that's what Peckinpah does and so. He's taking he's taking you on this journey of these guys who are evil people who've never lived up to their code, and he's taking you to the place when they finally do something where they do live up to their code. But he's not going to give it to you easy. And so the way that, like I was saying, like Angel being the most uh, idealistic or Dutch being the most philosophical, but Angel's the guy who kills his girlfriend. Dutch is the guy who lets Angel be captured and doesn't help him in any way. He says he's a thief. Um, when the violence, the end violence comes, the redemptive violence, the violence that that redeems the wild bunch comes, he doesn't give it to you as simple as that because he's going to make it nasty. If you come in, if you come into the movie going, um, you know, uh, if you come into the movie acting like, oh, the violence is bad or gross or whatever, and that's the point of the movie, you have to then contend with the fact that he's showing it to you in the most uh, epic, beautiful, erotic fashion. If you're coming into the movie loving action, he, you're going to have to contend with the fact that there's women being trampled, used as shields, there's children around, you know? Um, so he's not gonna, you, you can't ever, whoever you are, you're going to have to wrestle with what he's actually going to give you. Yeah. You got to reckon with these movies. You can't, they don't just wash over you. Exactly. And so, so even their act of redemptive violence, they go and they kill Mapache, but then he gives you that moment where that pauses and they could get out, potentially get out, but to what? And so when Pike says, let's go he's not only just saying let's go rescue angel he's saying let's go let's leave this world yeah. we are done that's <laughs> one of those things where like on the page let's go is a pretty simple straightforward line but when it comes to delivery and the pregnant pause and that eerie expression that warren oates makes as he kind of tries to compute and process what pike might mean and he says why not it's like, oh my fucking god! Like that's four words, but that it speaks like these giant oh. volumes that most screenplays never come within a mile of communicating. It's just it's awe inspiring how movies for me at their best are relatively simple and straightforward uh, stories that get amplified and made more complex by the execution. But never in a million years have I seen such economical dialogue say so much that as an audience member you can watch this movie for twenty years. And you're still going to be wrestling with what the fuck does Pike actually mean when he says "let's go," because he because Peckinpah has done the the groundwork. The thing is that he has he's he's lived it and he's built it in a way where he can have the freedom to just give you that, or he can have the freedom to take the most sympathetic character and make them a bad person. Because because his themes are so strong and and so that end act is 
it's it, it is an act of redemptive violence. Is it an act of nihilism? Yes, perhaps, but it's no less an act of nihilism than, let's say, Samson, you know, uh, pushing the pillars to kill all the Philistines. You know, he's he does show Mapache's stronghold as this Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so you you don't ever fully know where to stand with the movie. Um, I I do think that it has a transcendental. Uh, religious through line, but he's not gonna he's not gonna fully give you that. Yeah, or he's not gonna he's, spell it out. He's not gonna make it obvious. He's not gonna beat you over the head. Whatever agenda or message might be there, it's deep, deep, like hidden deep within the movie, and you got to go digging for it. Whereas lesser filmmakers, clumsier filmmakers, they just say, "Oh, this is what the movie's about." Like I'm just gonna lecture you and so on and so forth. And Peckham was like, "No, I'm gonna make you go." I'm gonna make you spend the rest of your life searching for the meaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and 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 there were different things. Like so, so you know, he was. Um, it's not scripted, but I guess supposedly he shot the he shot a scene where the bounty hunters are killed by um, um, old man Sykes and uh, the Mexican revolutionaries. Uh, you hear the gunshots, but it's not actually in the script, but supposedly it was filmed. There are photos of it. Yeah, they, cut, um, they very and, wisely cut it. And I think that's one of the few contributions where Peckinpah, even after his falling out with his producer, was still willing to acknowledge you made the right call by having that take place off screen. Yeah, and he almost ended the movie with uh, Deke Thornton just sitting there with his empty you know, whiskey bottle. And that, and, 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 and there are, there's a lot of that imagery where Pike's whiskey bottles, it's, it's empty now. It's empty, right? Um, there are a lot of things that kind of pull back through, through thematically through the film of Angel shooting the girl, Pike's women, woman being shot, Pike being shot by the woman and then shooting her. It's just there are just all these echoes that reverberate throughout the film. It, 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 the fabric of it just, uh, you know, it, 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 the detail and the depth of how things sort of circle in on each other. But he almost left it at that. And yeah, because it's not in the screenplay that you're going to have this like beautiful, wonderful montage of them laughing while you hear that beautiful music again. The fact that you ha- the laughter is so ever present throughout the movie, this like eerie, demonic, nihilistic, like laughing in the face of danger kind of laughter, but that it comes back to remind you of the the, the journey you've taken and to bring that music back from the village, the music that you mentioned earlier, um, La Golondrina. It's it's only in the editing room can you cook up that kind of ending. Yeah, and so I'm glad he ended it the way he did, um, because there because the redemption the redemptive violence redeems the wild bunch, um, but it also redeems Deke Thornton. You know, he did what he needed to do, and he never actually had to pull the trigger on them. Yeah. He keeps Pike's uh, gun. Like he still considers him like his closest friend. And I mean, the things he says about Pike throughout the course of the movie, he just obviously yearns to be with them. But when at one point when he's chastising his men and he says, uh, you think Pike and old Sykes haven't been watching us? They know what this is all about. And what do I have? Nothing but you egg sucking chicken stealing gutter trash with not even 60 rounds between you. We're after men. And I wish to God I was with them. The next time you make a mistake, I'm going to ride off and let you die. (laughs) He's yeah, got... and, and, and at the end, that that the line that uh, Edwin O'Brien gives was actually scripted as "It ain't what it, it ain't what you it used to be, but it's better than nothing." But it's, uh, but it'll do is perfect. Yeah, it's been it's we I guess like in the third or fourth episode of the podcast, we put together the the intro and outro, and I was thinking, oh, one of my favorite moments from movies, 
And for whatever reason, that's the moment that stuck out to me from uh, The Wild Bunch. I have no idea why that line has so much impact for me. But as I was thinking, I was like, Taxi Driver's a big movie. Citizen Kane's a big movie. Casablanca's a big movie. I was like, it's got to be something from The Wild Bunch. What would be a good... And I was like, all right, well, fuck it. The last line from the movie, that'll be the last line for every episode of Wrong Real. And I, and I think people seem to really like that as the last line of every episode. Well, and, 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 and going back to like the the religious aspect of it is to quote flannery o'connor uh she says you know all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful and that's what the wild bunch goes through and that's what Deke thornton goes through and there is that grace note peckinball doesn't leave it to where it's just Deke thornton with an empty bottle uh, and what what does it mean there still is that grace. There still is something redemptive. Now, in later Peck and Paul movies, there's no redemption. Pat <laughs> Garen, Billy the Kid, there's no redemption. Uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, there is no redemption. But at this point in his life, that's the point that he's making. And and it's, it's you know, uh, probably allied with everything else about everything that kind of he hits correctly with this. That probably also keeps this from being kind of that real that real gaze into the abyss that a lot of his later movies are and uh it, and you know yeah you go out of the movie set some uplifted to a certain degree and uh, you're you're in the end you're really not sure why <laughs> well i don't know if we can find a better note in this subject on and like i said we we tried to stay concise and do the point but this movie is so rich and there's so much to discuss I, I feel like we could probably keep keep going, but I think maybe now's the time to draw this to a close because we are going to be revisiting this topic with uh, author Garner Simmons down the road when we discuss his book Peckinpah: A Portrait of Montage. But maybe what are you, just what are the best books out there on Peckinpah, and what are the best little documentaries on him? In case people want to really do the deep dive for further study, apart from just obviously just watching the movies, what for you is the definitive guide? to educating yourself about Peckinpah if somebody wants to really just go all in? Uh, there, there's actually a lot of great writing about Peckinpah. Um, if you want to know more about the making of, of The Wild Bunch, which I've cribbed a bunch for this podcast, um, there's a book that came out last year by W.K. Stratton um, that uh, is, uh, goes into all the making of it, and it's, it's well worth a read. Um, to get more into the thematics of Peckinpah's work, I would, I would always recommend Paul Cedor. Um, the Western films are reconsideration. Yeah. I read that one back in college. Yeah. That one is great. Gardner Simmons book is great. It, it, it's a little bit of criticism, but also a lot of, uh, interviews with people that knew Peckinpah and Gardner Simmons himself knew Peckinpah. Um, so that one is, is also great. Um, if they move kill him by David Weddle, um, is a biography on Peck and Pond. So that one's worth checking out. Um, and then there's also, um, I don't remember, I can't remember the title of it, but it's by Stephen Prince and it's a Peck and Paul book about the way he handles violence. Um, and, uh, he really latches onto like, uh, straw dogs and, um, and, uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. I don't, no, we've is, never brought up straw dogs because not a western but i wouldn't be opposed at some point to 
doing an episode about Peckinpah about the non-Westerns, even though they're not many, but there are a few. Yeah. <laughs> but Straw Dogs for me, whew, that movie's yeah. uh, that movie's uh, a sledgehammer blow to the nuts. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean, I mean that, and and that's the thing is that is that the Wild Bunch is at, at its heart of it an, an adventure film. And so you can accept it on that level to a certain degree, just like you can accept it as a nihilistic thing there. It doesn't, it, it's not like he's playing both. He's not like working both sides of the street. I don't ever want to give that impression, but you're going to bring to it what you're going to bring to it. But yeah, he, I don't know. If there was, is another filmmaker that really probes into the, the masculine soul as much as Peckinpah does. And he gets, he gets shit upon because he's supposedly a misogynist, but he really, especially with Straw Dogs, which is the movie that people point to as his most misogynistic film, he really taps into the dark heart of the masculine soul in that. And uh, and, and he doesn't look at it in a good way. And so um, that yeah, would be I think inter- it's an oversimplification when people criticize him for that respect because I feel like if you want to actually criticize the dark side of men, nobody has done that better than Peckinpah. So if anything, they should look upon him as a hero for perfectly articulating all the things that they hate in men. So if anything, they should be looking upon straw dogs as like evidence to confirm all the things that they think about men. So- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say between between him and uh, Scorsese, uh, Paul Schrader, I think that they're, they're the ones that have probably plumbed the depths of like uh, that horrible that that horrible thing in every man that you love and you love and you hate, you know. And um, but Peckinpah is going to show you the the horror of it but the beauty of it. And he's going to give you, he's going to give you something. He's going to give you something in yourself as to why these men live the way that they lived. Well, where can people find you online if they want to continue to explore in this topic? If, if two and a half hours of wild bunch conversation is not enough and they want more, where do they find David Lambert to continue this conversation? Uh, David Lambert art on Instagram, uh, Facebook and on Twitter. Beautiful. Well, I hope you sell a fucking whole room full of paintings off of this episode. And at some point, maybe we'll have to completely blow people's minds and not talk about Westerns at all and talk about erotic art on an episode or erotic cinema or something like that. Because I feel like you've probably got, even though I know you love talking about Westerns because you can't ever find anybody in real life that wants to talk about Westerns with you, but something tells me you've got some other topics uh, in the world of cinema that excite you as well. But we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. If you're new to Peckinpah, brace yourself. It's going to be a hell of a journey. And if you're an old hand, revisit any of his best movies and you're going to fall in love all over again because his best work stands alone and it's immortal and it's inexhaustible. And it's why ever since I first got exposed to him, he's remained one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. But we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. If you want more content in the short term, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock, and we're going to be posting some Wild Bunch content there sometime in the near future, later this spring. But we just can't thank you enough for listening. Hope you really enjoyed it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.